Ladies and gentlemen, to open the Bay Area Women's Summit, please welcome the head of Hamlin School, Wanda Holland-Green. But I sing no victim song. I am a woman. I am an artist. And I know where my voice belongs. I said I am an endangered species. But I sing no victim song. I am a woman. I am an artist. I know where my voice belongs. I am a woman. I exist. I shake my fist, but not my hips. My skin is dark, my body is strong. I sing of a rebirth, but no victim song. Oh, say I am an endangered species, but I sing no victim song. I am a woman, you are a woman. We are artists, and we know where our voices belong. I am absolutely delighted to be here this morning to electrify the air in the first ever Bay Area Women's Summit. I cannot say enough about the importance of gathering together Women and men gathering together to harness the power of our energy and our expertise. Thank you to Mayor Lee and to Mayor Schaff for their bold vision and their resolve to make a lasting difference in the lives of women and families in their respective cities. We know full well that when it comes to making a lasting difference, that conversation is necessary but not sufficient. So what will our individual and collective action be after today? Will we do things to make sure that we pull each other up? What will we do to make sure that women's lives are not endangered? How will we pull each other up? When you get to the top of the mountain, pull the next one up. Then there'll be two of you roped together at the waist, tired and proud, knowing the mountain, knowing the human force it took to bring both of you there. And when the second one has finished taking in the view, satisfied by the heat and perspiration under the wall, let her pull the next one up, man or woman, climber of mountains. Pull the next hand over the last jagged rock to become three. Two showing what they've already seen and one knowing now the well-being with being finished with one mountain. With being able to look out a long way toward other mountains, feeling that temptation to claim victory as if mountains were human toys to own. When you ask how high is this mountain with a compulsion to know where you stand in relation to other peaks, look down to where from you came up and set the rope that's tied to your waist, tied to the next man's waist, and tied to the next woman's waist, and tied to the first man's waist, to the first woman's waist, and pull the rope. 
Never mind the flags you see flapping on conquered pinnacles. And don't waste time scratching inscriptions into the monolith because you are the stone itself. And each man, each woman up the mountain, each breath exhaled at the peak, each glad I made it, here's my hand, each heartbeat wrapped around the hot skin of the sunbright sky, each noise panted and cracked with laughter, each embrace, each cloud that holds everyone in momentary doubt, all these are the inscriptions of a human force that can conquer conquering, hand over hand, pulling the rope, next man up, next woman up, sharing a place, sharing a vision. There's room enough for all on the mountain peaks. There's force enough for all to hold all the hanging bodies dangling in the deep recesses of the mountain's belly steady until they have the courage until they know the courage, until they understand that the only courage there is, is to pull the next man up. Pull the next woman up. Pull the next up. 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 Thank you so much. Let's get ready for a great day. Please welcome the MC for today's summit, five-time Emmy award-winning journalist, anchor, and presently the host of KQED Newsroom, Twee Vu. Well, hello there. Thank you, Wanda, for the inspirational song and the inspirational word. She was fantastic. Good morning to all of you. How are you? That's kind of lukewarm. How are you? Now that sounds more like a sold out crowd of nearly 1,500 attending today. Woohoo! We're so glad that you could be here today and be part of the excitement we have about powerful conversations and actions that move Bay Area women and our community forward. I'm Tui Vu. I'm honored to be your MC today. We have an amazing program planned with inspiring speakers who are both passionate and on the leading edge of gender equity issues. A little note about myself. I came here from Vietnam with my family as a refugee, not knowing a word of English, lived in a couple of refugee camps camps before landing in Minnesota uh, and then eventually moving to California. But all along the way, so many people helped us. And I think that's why I'm exceptionally excited to be here today because it really is about all of us working together and helping to lift each other up. And so this conference today is really all about you, all of you, and how we can join this conversation and this movement. We want to encourage you to share your voice, connect with amazing people here today, and help us build a movement. Does that sound good? All right. And if you have not already done so, we encourage you to download our event app, Bay Area Women. It is free from your phone's app store. In fact, I'm going to kick things off by taking a picture of all of you. Everybody smile. You're going to be all over social media. I've got 5,000 friends on Facebook. 
You're all going to be my best new friends. And now to formally open today's proceedings, please join me in welcoming our hosts, the leaders who inspired this convening of men and women to focus on the every woman. Please welcome the mayor of San Francisco, Edwin Lee, and the mayor of Oakland, Libby Schaaf. Wow, well, welcome to the Bay Area's first Women's Summit. I'm so glad you're all here today, and I'm honored and proud to co-host the summit with an incredible leader, the Mayor of Oakland, Libby Schaaf. Well, we discussed this opportunity to convene this Bay Area Women's Summit when she first became mayor. We wanted to improve economic and social conditions for women in our cities and in the region to make sure we remain leaders in equality. Are you all excited to hear from all of our speakers today? Well, I sure am. Well, you know, it is an incredible time for women. Nationally, we have a feminist as president of the United States. These are his words, not mine. And I think we can all agree that he stands by his word. His very first legislation signed into office was the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act of 2009. And the Affordable Care Act supports our working and low-income women and families. He's appointed smart and talented women to areas of government, to his cabinet, to the bench in the highest court of our land, and we're honored to have one of his cabinet members with us today, Valerie Jarrett. And today, we have an aspiring woman as a presidential candidate for a major party. And I will continue to support her all the way to the White House as our first female president of the United States. Well, in the Bay Area, we have always been at the forefront of social change. So it's no surprise San Francisco has led the way with guaranteed parental leave, guaranteed sick leave, and guaranteed affordable health care. We've also raised the minimum wage to one of the most progressive in the nation to help our working mothers and families share in the prosperity of our region. And we have created college savings accounts for all of our San Francisco public school students to the K through college program. Well, all of this ensures that women have more rights in the workplace and are better positioned to succeed. And throughout my time as in San Francisco government, I fought and strengthened legislation so our women could obtain more of our city's contracts. When the Bay Area hosted Super Bowl 50, Mayor Schaff and I made sure our women and minority-owned businesses received contracts that benefited their small businesses. And our regional nonprofits serving women and minorities also received funds from the Super Bowl 50 Fund. In my early days as a young civil rights attorney, I sued the city and county of San Francisco <laughs> to make sure more women and communities of color were able to join forces in our fire department. And today, we now have a woman leading the largest fire department in the nation, 
our Fire Chief, Joanne Hayes-White, who's here with us today. In our city's government workforce, 58% of our over 30,000 employees are women. We now have women holding some of the highest offices in the city, including our city administrator, our fire chief, our Department of Emergency Management director, public health director, port director, director of our environment, and the director of our human resources, and so many more. We are the first city in the nation to have created a department on the status of women. Thank you, Mayor Willie Brown, for your foresight and leadership in creating this very important department. And thank you to our director, Emily Morase, for your commitment to women everywhere. We have a vibrant Healthy Mothers Workplace Coalition, which is a partnership across several city departments, businesses, and community organizations. The coalition promotes family-friendly workplace policies and supports all of our San Francisco employers who want to help parents uh, in achieving work-life balance. And in my personal life and at home, I'm surrounded by strong women. My wife, Anita, who's here today, and my daughters, Tanya and Brianna, therefore, I have a personal responsibility to keep San Francisco in the forefront of gender equality. And I'm reminded every day that although we have achieved a lot, we have even more to do. Yes, we are living in an incredible time for women. Women everywhere are shattering the glass ceiling, but we know we need to do even more to make sure that all women can fully participate in our economy, in their communities, and more importantly, in their families. Because when women succeed, our world moves forward. So on too many fronts, whether it's equal pay, financial literacy, implicit bias training, affordable child care, we're falling short. And I called on this Bay Area Women's Summit to put a spotlight on both the progress that we have made, but more importantly, the work to be done. Throughout the day, we want to hear from all of you about the actions that we can take to solve the challenges that we face. So please, give your feedback through the polls and discussions. And as Mayor Schaff and I always say, working together, we can solve any problem. So, to kick this off, Mayor Libyshaf and I are going to do a little selfie with you in the background and push this off to the social media frenzy. So come on, Libby, you've got the tech smarts. <laughs> Ready? All right. There we go. All right. And please find it at the hashtag Bay Area Women. We have an exciting day. Enjoy the summit, everyone. And let me introduce my partner on this summit, the mayor of Oakland, Mayor Libby Schaff. Good morning. Well, it was really my honor, and I really want to acknowledge that this summit was Mayor Lee's idea. Uh, but I said to him when he came to me, uh, I said, I don't know about you, but I'm really busy, and I don't have time for another networking event. 
this has got to be about action. And so I'm going to ask that as we go into this day, that you do three things, three things. First, we all know what the obvious issues are. Things like equity and pay or access to small business capital. Let's stop just talking about them. By the end of today, I want you to do something about one of these issues. Uh, one of the things I'm going to do is make a loan to a small woman-owned business today. I will do that before the end of the day. It's a small thing, but it's something I can directly do to address what I think is such an obvious disparity. The second thing I ask you to do today is really look to uncover the less obvious gender-based problems. When Mayor Lee and I co-chaired a campaign uh, earlier in the year to put minimum wage on the California ballot, both our cities have adopted our own minimum wages, but we wanted to do it for the whole state of California. We recognized that while minimum wage seems like a gender-neutral issue, that roughly two-thirds of California's minimum wage earners are women. They are women. And a vast majority of them support children. And so let's uncover the less obvious issues. Uh, the other one that has been deep on my mind lately uh, is the issue of a toxic macho culture. Um, I've had two tweetable moments this month. Oh. Let us not applaud for the toxic macho culture. It's a booze. Uh, I've had two tweetable moments over the last month. Um, one was defending my fine city of Oakland when uh, the presumptive Republican nominee mistakenly and very ignorantly referred to Oakland as one of the most dangerous places in the world. And I retorted that the most dangerous place in America is Donald Trump's mouth. And then just last Friday, uh, I had to express my extreme anger and disgust for a horrific scandal in my police department involving the exploitation of a teenager who has been trafficked, a sexually exploited young girl and when I said that I am here to run a police department, not a frat house, I was talking about that toxic macho culture. And let's do a third thing today. Let us claim our allies. Because the people that I heard from when I called out that toxic culture were the fine men of the Oakland Police Department, who did not want any part of that reputation. <laughs> By lifting up what is fair and just, we are claiming our civil society. This is not just about fighting for women's rights. It's about fighting for what is right and fair. And let us remember that we are not alone in that fight. And that's another thing that I'm excited about, how this day has been structured.
It really is about uncovering the less obvious, claiming our allies, and moving from talk to action. So thank you for being here today. I cannot wait for the rest of the summit. Man, Libby Schaff and Mayor Lee, but if you read Libby Schaff's tweets, whoa, she knows how to tweet. Uh, <laughs> thank you both. I really appreciate that. And, you know, um, uh, Libby talked about the toxic macho culture, but I want to point out that there are a, quite a few men here today as well. So a lot of great men are here joining us in our movement. So if you want, you can even stand up, men, and we'll applaud you. Men, men. <laughs> Thank you. I see my friend Irby Foster with Clorox over there. I said, you got to go, dude. It's a women's conference, but you've got to go. And so thank you for coming here today, Irby. Um, as you can imagine, an event like this requires a lot of support and the contributions of many individuals, organizations, and corporations who are committed to women's economic empowerment. You can see the full list on the back of your program. But in particular, we would like to thank our empowerment sponsors, Kaiser Permanente, and Kilroy Realty, thank you so much. We would also like to thank our equity leader sponsors, Chevron, Cisco, Comcast, Microsoft, PG&E, and United. Thank you as well. And we are so pleased to have uh, some amazing people joining us today. You're all amazing, of course, but we're going to take a moment here to recognize the elected officials in the room, the president of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, London Breed. I've got quite a few names to go through here, so you can hold your applause, and I'll ask you to applaud at the end. How's that? San Francisco Supervisors Malia Cohen, Katie Tang, and Scott Wiener are here. Oakland Vice Mayor Annie Campbell-Washington, the Chairwoman of the California Board of Equalization, Fiona Ma, and Catherine Way, the Mayor of Larkspur, all here as well. Thank you. We also have uh, representatives of Senator Barbara Boxer, Leader Pelosi, Congresswoman Jackie Speer, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, California Attorney General Kamala Harris, California State Controller Betty Yee, California State Senator Lonnie Hancock, Oakland Council members Abel Guillen, Dan Kalb, and Rebecca Kaplan. And Mayor Lee and Mayor, oh, we should applaud them. Now you can applaud. And Mayor Lee and Mayor Schaff are so happy to, to create this forum here for you today. It is done in partnership with the Women's Foundation of California. And so at this time, yes, at this time, please, got a whole cheering section here for the Women's Foundation. Yeah, you guys rock. Please join me in welcoming their CEO, a leader in the philanthropic and nonprofit social justice sector, Serena Khan. and men who are
are here today. Thank you for being here. I'm so delighted uh, to follow Mayor Schaff and Mayor Lee in welcoming you all to what is going to be an incredible day. Because at the Women's Foundation of California, we are all about action. We're known for three things. We train women advocates to write and pass laws that protect and strengthen women's rights and make our state stronger. The second thing we do is we train women philanthropists to champion justice and opportunity through the power of our purses. And three, we partner with leaders across movements to fight for gender equity and economic well-being for all. Over the last 40 years, we've identified, supported, and ignited thousands of women leaders in our state, and those leaders have gone on to affect and improve the lives of millions of people. So today we are so honored to partner with the cities of San Francisco and Oakland, two cities who have been at the forefront of gender and economic justice issues in California. It's important that we are all here today, and it's urgent that we bring our diverse communities together to learn from one another and to develop good, effective solutions to the challenges that we face here in the Bay Area and across the state. Because only together can we turn our struggles into strengths. Over the last few years, you heard the mayor say that many important progressive laws have passed in the Bay Area and in California. And we should be proud because these laws have improved wages, they've improved working conditions, and they've improved the livelihoods of millions of women. In the Bay Area, we've seen victories, paid parental leave, the Retail Workers' Bill of, of, of Rights in Oakland, increased minimum wage, paid sick leave in both cities. So we are leading the way, and yet we are still leaving too many women behind, especially low-income women, women of color, immigrant women, and single mothers. Despite the wealth that we have here, roughly 14% of women are living in poverty in San Francisco and Oakland. We spend 60% of our income on housing, and if we have one child, we spend nearly 40% on childcare, which means that we have nothing left over at the end of the month. Meanwhile, women are breadwinners or co-breadwinners in 60% of our families, which means that we're responsible for our family's well-being. But we're also two-thirds of minimum wage workers, two-thirds of part-time workers, and two-thirds of tipped workers which means that many of us are working in precarious conditions un in unprotected, inflexible, and low-wage jobs. So as I see it, women are trying to win bread for our families, but the size of the loaf is shrinking. And for some, it's disappearing. Single mothers, 40% are living in poverty, and it gets worse as we age. California leads the nation in the percentage of elderly women living in poverty. And what about mass incarceration? One in four women and one in two black women has a family member who is incarcerated, which means that women are the caretakers supporting our families financially while at the same time supporting loved ones behind bars. And lesbian and transgender people, even in the Bay Area, face greater economic insecurity and threats to our safety. 
So we know that when women are economically secure and can thrive, it has a direct ripple effect on our families and communities. At the Women's Foundation of California, we're a community foundation, we're your community foundation, and we rely on the support of individuals and private funders so that together we can all invest in women. Because we know and history has shown time and time again that women can and will develop solutions to the challenges that we and our communities face. We're smart, we're determined, we're bold, and we will do whatever it takes to achieve gender equity. Because social change is not for the faint of heart, and that's why it's a perfect job for a woman. So thank you for joining us today and for committing to working across issues and sectors to advance gender equity. The success of Bay Area women is critical for the success of Bay Area families and the Bay Area economy. Because when women succeed, it's good for everyone. Good for women, good for families, good for communities, and good for business. Thank you so much. Well, she's a CEO, an author, a Princeton dean, a professor of foreign policy, expert, a mother. These are just some of the roles that Anne-Marie Slaughter has had in her life. In 2012, she ignited a fierce debate across the country with her Atlantic article entitled, Why Women Still Can't Have It All. Her in-depth look into the extreme work-life balance hurdles of today's professional women became the most read article in Atlanta's history, highlighting the importance of this issue for today's families. She's become a thought leader on work-life balance and the future of workplace, and her book, Unfinished Business, was named one of the best books of 2015 by NPR and The Economist. And whether she was the Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's Director of Policy Planning or the Dean of the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. She's been a champion for women everywhere. We are so lucky to have her with us today. Please welcome to the stage Anne-Marie Slaughter. Thank you. Wow. So I now run an organization called New America, and when I look out at all of you, I see the faces of the New America. I want to talk about care and men and public policy. I want to start with care, and I want to talk about something that I could not have talked about four years ago when I wrote my Atlantic article. There are two sides to all of us. There's a caring side and a competitive side. And each of us has a different distribution. I have an aunt who is all the way over on the competitive side. When, when my children were little, like under five, she would compete with them in backyard games. So, <laughs> and superb athlete, wonderful woman. 
Some of us are all the way over on the nurturing side, and all of us know people who really are born nurturers in different ways. But most of us have both those sides. And hum the human race itself has both those sides. We, we would not have advanced without that drive, that ability to set goals and to achieve them, uh, that, that sort of engine of progress. But we equally would not have survived if we did not care for each other. We wouldn't have gotten past the per first saber-toothed tiger if we didn't, we weren't, as any anthropologist or paleontologist can tell you, if we weren't social animals. Indeed, our brains are hardwired for human connection. It is what distinguishes us, that that capacity for care is absolutely and in some ways even more the essence of our humanity than that competitive instinct. And indeed, as we move into the world that this part of the country is inventing, and as we automate more and more, we're going to be able to automate lots of things that come from the head, but not so much things that come from the heart. So I want to start with the proposition that care is every bit as important as competition, that they are two sides of all of us and that healthy human beings and healthy societies value both. Now let me talk about what that means. So just if, we're, if we're talking about professional women, the women that I wrote my Atlantic article for, I was after all writing for the Atlantic, which is not exactly a mass market publication, um, it's a fine publication, but I was writing for women more or less like myself, women who think about work as a career, we who have the luxury of calling it a career, who can imagine an upward trajectory of growth and development when we think about work. For that group of women to say that care is as important as career is to say that of course we should support all women in reaching for the stars, in being as competitive as they can be, but it's also to say that when we take time out, if we need to, or downshift, I mean, in my case, I left a high State Department job for a tenured professorship. It was not exactly not working, believe me. But still, it was a lateral move. It was a move that said, I need more time for my children, not only for them, but also for me. It was the last four years that they would be at home, and I knew that at the end of my life, if I looked back and had missed that, I was going to feel that I had made the wrong choice. Others caring for parents, caring for spouses, caring for disabled family members or ill family members, however you define care and however you define family as a collection of people you love, whether that's biological or constructed, taking that time Again, moving laterally, deferring a promotion, working part-time, or, work, or taking time out completely if you can afford it. For professional women and men, valuing care set means not seeing that as the black mark on your resume. Quite the contrary. Seeing that as something that A, val validates character, responsibility, and a host of other skills and values that we should lift up. So for that group, so 
So that's what care means, valuing care for professional women. And we've got a long way to go in terms of changing our workplaces and our values to get there. But now let's talk about a much larger group of women because we have too few women at the top and so much of days like today is aimed at getting more women to the top, which I'm all for in political office and in the private sector and the nonprofit sector. There are too few of those women at the top, but there are far too many women at the bottom. We just heard that two-thirds of minimum wage workers, part-time workers, and tip workers, the workers in the most fragile part of our society, in the most fragile jobs, in the least well-paid jobs, two-thirds of those workers are women. We have too few women at the top, but way too many women at the bottom. And too often, when we focus on advancing women, we look at the women at the top. The thing we hear most often is how many women are in the Fortune 500? Well, the answer is way too few. Right? It's 29 or 28 and it ought to be 250 or let's go for it, 300. <laughs> so too few women at the top, but way too many women at the bottom. And a focus on care helps us see all women. Because when we focus on care, we realize that those women at the bottom, as you just heard, are overwhelmingly single mothers or women who are simultaneously having to be breadwinner and caregiver. And we are supporting their breadwinning and we're expecting them to work, certainly, but we are not supporting their caregiving. And so when you focus on care and you start thinking about the policies of care, and not just the policies of, of advancing women to the top, what you're do, then going to do, as I'll talk about in a few minutes, is focus on all those policies that actually help women at the bottom much more than women at the top. Because women at the top are able to buy their way out of care problems, but women at the bottom are not. So focusing on care lets us see all women. It lets us construct a political movement of all women, and it focuses us particularly on poor women and minority and immigrant women. You're going to hear from Ai-jen Poo later today and her work around uh, caregivers in the home who are not subject even to basic hour and wage protections. You're going, to see, you're going to hear about how in lifting up the caregivers who right now are paid no more than the people we pay to walk our dogs or mix our drinks. Think about that for a minute. Right? That we pay people who park our cars, mix our drinks, walk our dogs the same as we pay people who care for our children and our parents uh, and are ill and disabled. If we focus on those women and we focus on care, we get to a set of policies that will lift all women. The last thing I want to say about valuing care, and again, I didn't think this way four years ago. I've spent three years working through and, and kind of deprogramming myself because I was raised to want to be like my dad, not my mom. That's what it meant to be a 
you know, a, a strong, powerful woman when I was growing up. It was to be to do the work my dad did, not the work my mom did. I still think I'm very grateful that I was born when I was born and not when my mother was born or my grandmothers were born. I still think it's it, obviously that is, is the great progress we've made over my lifetime, that women can do the work our fathers did, but we now have to elevate the work our mothers did and value it just as much. And the, the third piece of this, so women as in professional careers, women uh, who are, are working at low-paid jobs. But the third piece of this is the caring professions, right? When someone says to you now, first, if, certainly if somebody says, I'm taking time out to care for my children or for my parents, you fall right off the social scale in our society. Uh, women routinely write that one day they're a journalist or a banker or a lawyer, and the next day they're caring for their children or their parents or anyone else who needs care, and they essentially feel like they're a nobody. So there's that group of caregivers. But then what about when someone says, I'm a teacher, I'm a coach, I'm a rabbi, I'm a minister, I'm a therapist of anything from massage to mental therapy. Any kind of therapist is essentially a caring uh, uh, profession, uh, or someone uh, who says, I'm doing any kind of health work. Those are the caring professions. And those professions are paid less well and valued much less than the competitive professions. So we just heard Mayor Schaaf say, this is an action summit. Here's the first thing I'm going to, to give you that you all can actively do at the end of today. I, I prefer actually not asking people what do they do, because what we mean when we say that is what do you do for money, and that immediately says if you are doing work that is not paid, you are not valued. But even if you want to say what do you do, if someone says, I'm caring for anyone, or someone says, I'm a teacher, I'm a nurse, I'm a coach, I'm a therapist, I'm a minister, any one of the caring prof uh, professions, look at that person and say, that is such important work. And train yourself to mean it. That's the first point. We need to value care. We need to value it socially, economically, and politically. That does not mean that we don't still value competition and the incredible striving that defines in this region uh, in many ways. But it means we insist that both are equal. The second thing we have to do is change the way we see and treat men. Because if I just talk about valuing care, as much as I believe it and as passionate as I am about it, if I only talk about the value of care and the, the, the uh, importance of respecting it and paying for it, that risks sending women backwards. And that's one reason that many women were very upset with my original Atlantic article, because they thought it imperiled the tremendous work that the women of my generation have done, but even more important, the women 10 years ahead of me. I graduated from college in 1980. There was, <laughs> there was plenty of sexism, and I didn't know any women, doctors, lawyers, bankers, uh, you name it. I, I had never seen a woman in any of those positions. But still, it's the women who graduated in 1970 
who broke the barriers such that for me, it, wa it wasn't easy, but it, it was already acceptable by the time I was looking for a job in, in around 1990. There were women, people were looking for women. Um, those women worried that if we focus on care and the family, we'll drag women backward. And the only way to value care and competition equally without harming women is to expect men to be equal caregivers and to assume they will be equally good at it. This, we're just at the beginning of this revolution. You're going to hear from Joshua Levs later. Um, you're going to, there are men among you. The men, and they are a very small group, who are standing up and saying, wait a minute, I am a prisoner of constructed gender roles too. Men wrote to me. Now, first, the first point I will make is that a gay man named Scott Siegel wrote to me and said, how dare you? This is after my Atlantic article. How dare you in exclamation points? And he was 100% right. He said, you wrote your article on the assumption that only women need to take time for care, that only women are those who are, feel that enormous pull to be with those we love. How dare you? I'm a gay man, and I care about my family every bit as much as you do. And you don't have to be a gay man to feel that way. Plenty of other men wrote to me to say, you think women have it all. You have this idea, you, you think men have it all. You have this idea that, you know, working the way we work and providing for our family and also having a family, even if we can't see them, is having it all. I did not ask for this job. My role is to be the provider of cash. And if I say I want to take leave, either paternity leave or work part-time or flexible time or all the things that we need to be able to fit care and career together, if I say that, not only am I regarded as somebody who's not committed to my career, that's true for women and men, but as a man, if I say that, I'm regarded as less than a man. So we as women have to help deconstruct the gender roles that are imposed on our sons, our brothers, and our fathers just as much as we've deconstructed the gender roles that we, or at least the women of my generation, grew up with. And the men who are doing that, my husband is a lead parent. He is home now with our, our younger son. As my job got bigger and I started to travel, our co-parenting became lead parenting for him. Big jobs typically in the society mean you have to be on a plane or you have to be at meetings. You cannot reschedule. And if you have jobs at that level, somebody has to be lead parent or extended family, right, depending on whatever configuration of your family uh, you have. But the men who are stepping up to take that role, they are pioneers just as much as the women of the early 1970s. The women of the early 1970s who said, I am going to do something I've never seen another woman do. I am going to, I am going to enter male spaces. I'm going to compete with men on their terms. They were ridiculed, and they were ridiculed particularly around their lack of femininity. Right? They were called every name in the book, and most of them are not printable here, but most of them had to do with their 
seeming to have male anatomy. Let's put it that way. The men today are doing the same thing. They are breaking gender stereotypes and they are called feminine. They are called house husbands. They are called Mr. Mom. They are ridiculed often in the same way that women insisted that they could break gender roles in the early 1970s. Those men are insisting that they have what their fathers did not have in the same way we insisted that we grasp what our mothers could not grasp. They are insisting that they should be able to be just as involved in their children's lives that, or their parents' lives or their loved ones' lives, that they have that balance between the caring side and the competitive side just as much as women. And we women have a lot to do with making that possible. Just as the women's movement would not have succeeded without a lot of men who were also feminists, my mentors were men. There were no women. My mentors were men, men who had daughters, men who saw that their wives' talents were wasted, men who felt that their mothers had not had a fair shake. Those men saw a different future for women like me, and we have to see a different future for the men in our lives. We have to, first of all, combat our own sexism. We say things about men in the home that if, women, if men said about us in the office, we'd sue them. I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you just one example. So imagine you walk into the office and your boss says, well, I'm biologically better at this, but I think you can do it. If I leave you a long enough list of exactly what to do, hour by hour. And then when I travel, I'm gonna call in every hour or two to make sure you're doing those things I told you to do. You can't imagine being treated that way in the office. And you can't imagine, or maybe you can, but then you need a different job. And you can't imagine doing something that is routine in the office, like writing a memo, and having your boss say with evident surprise in his voice, wow, that was really good. <laughs> we do that to men at home all the time. We do. I, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll own it, right? I basically thought I knew what I was doing with our sons in, at home much more than my husband did. And I thought that because my mother raised me and her mother raised her and mother's all the way back. And I just assumed I knew how to raise kids and I, you know, I would tell my husband what he needed to do to help. And finally he said, look, you know, I'm, I'm happy to do this, but you're not going to micromanage me. I'm doing this my way. And where do you get off assuming your way is right? I couldn't answer that question, but I know in the office when a man says, <laughs> This is the way I'm doing it. I know better. I'm a man. I don't believe that. I don't accept it for a moment. I assume that I have all sorts of ideas about how to do things differently and that my way is equal, if not better. Well, we, we can't impose a double standard on the men in our lives. We have to actually assume they can do it just as well as we can do it, and we should expect them to do it. And when they do it, we should not praise them. They're like what I call the halo dad syndrome, right? When they like pick up a child or organize a birthday party, of course they can do that. The phrase, run a tight ship, 
comes from the Navy. Now we have women admirals, but we didn't used to. That meant men ran tight ships. Of course men can do it. It means when we talk to our sons and to the young men in our lives, we say, how are you planning to fit together work and family? It means we talk to them about being lead parents and supporting their wives or husbands' careers just as much as we would if we were talking to our daughters about how you fit things together and the trade-offs you may need to make. It means when young men are in your offices, you assume that they're going to take paternity leave and you do everything you can in your workplace to guarantee that it's family leave, that it is equal for mothers and fathers, two mothers, two fathers, and anything in between. It means we change our expectations of men so that they are as equal as our expectations of women. So that's the second thing you can do uh, after today. First, when someone tells you they're doing something that involves care, think about how important that work is. And second, start talking to all the men in your life. Maybe your father's not, but I have to say, feminist secret weapon are the fathers of daughters, particularly daughters that they have nurtured, they've invested in. So don't give up on our fathers either. But talk to all the men in your, wife, your life exactly as you would talk to the women in your life. I spent 20 years teaching, having that conversation with my female students and not my male students. Same thing with my sons until I finally realized, wait a minute, that is perpetuating gender stereotypes just as much as the old ones with respect to women, and we've got to change them both. So the last thing then to talk about is how we're going to do this collectively. There's a great deal we can do individually. There, the, the work of, of leaning in, of being confident, of raising our hands, of sitting at the table, all of that is enormously important work. There's a great deal we can do in our workplaces uh, in terms of changing the policies of our workplaces, and I always talk about it not in terms of work-family balance, but how can we work more effectively? How can we reinvent work the way we're reinventing everything else? How can we escape the jobs of the industrial era in the digital age? Thinking about making room for care, whether that is care of others or self-care or simply life, is, is part of working better, working more effectively, equally important for men as well as women. But even if we do all that, it won't be enough. It is no accident that today's summit is convened by two mayors, and what fabulous mayors they are. We have to do this work collectively as well as individually. And again, if you think of the women's movement and the early women's movement, there were all the policies we had to put in place. And initially, just the policies against sexual harassment, right, which wasn't even a term. Sexual harassment had to be invented. The laws, uh, the, the divorce laws, the abortion laws, all of the laws that we had to put in place to build a scaffolding for women's empowerment. We now have to put in place the laws and policies that build what I call and Ai-jen Poo calls, and we came at this, uh, the same term independently, uh, an infrastructure of care. 
right? We have an infrastructure of competition. It's better out here than it is on the East Coast, uh, your roads, your bridges, your airport. Uh, all of those are the infrastructure of competition, although we still have to continually renew that infrastructure, particularly uh, for our poorest citizens. But we're just at the, we have a fragmentary, barely existent infrastructure of care. And an infrastructure of care means those policies that support and enable Americans to care for each other. Not women, but all women and men, all of, all of our citizens, to be able to care for each other, again, whether those are children or parents or sick or disabled family members. Paid leave is the first step. It is appalling to other countries that you, many, of, many of the women in this country don't get a paid day off to have a child, much less, of course, to actually invest in our children. And I can say, as the head of a public policy research organization, investing in the first five years of our children's lives is the single most important thing we can do as a society. It is critical for our security, our prosperity, and our equality. We now know that in those first five years, you are not simply filling that child's head with knowledge. I'm not sure I ever succeeded in filling them with much of anything that I chose, but we're not just filling the, we're not just teaching them things. We are shaping those children's brains. We know this now. We are determining what they will be able to, to learn for the rest of their lives. The Pentagon gets this. The Pentagon has on-site daycare and pays its early education teachers the same as it pays its high school teachers. They get it, but for reasons you may not love, they are worried that we will not have the soldiers we need to operate the weapons of the future unless we invest in our children's minds. From an economic point of view, the same is true. We are in a global economy. We're, it's an incredibly competitive economy. If we want citizens who can compete, we have to invest in the first five years. And from an equality point of view, there is simply nothing more obvious. If, you, if children who don't get the kind of care they need, the development they need in those first five years, even when they start school, they are starting school with brains that are less capable of learning than their more privileged peers. That is, that is horrifying, frankly, as a society. But fortunately, the, 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 the policy response is evident investing in care, investing in early education, and unfortunately it doesn't stop there. The next phase where our citizens really change is teenagehood. Any of us may know that. Their insane and alienating behavior is actually a function of their brain chemistry. So investing in our citizens, investing in our children, investing in our ability to care for elders, investing in our ability to care for all, all of us to care for those we love, is as important as that infrastructure of competition. I want to end in my three seconds on a more personal note. So I succeeded by learning how to act like a man. 
I was, I looked around me growing up and men had the power and I tried to imitate them and my father wanted me to have a career because he was a, a lawyer in the 1960s and he saw far too many women being divorced by their husbands after they'd put them through graduate school and supported them early on and having no means of supporting themselves. So he raised me to have a career. In law school, I learned to shed my emotions. That's what thinking like a lawyer meant. It meant not feeling that incredible tug you felt for the victim of a particular case, but reasoning in a much more abstract way and leaving emotion out of it. As a law professor, as a dean, as a government official, I succeeded by imitating the men around me. I learned a lot. It's important that all of us be able to behave with confidence and know how to compete. But along the way, I left many of my deepest intuitions behind. And I'm going to ask all of you to claim your whole selves. It is not rocket science. It is not rocket science to know that making room for the caring side of who we are, for the love and the investment in others, and again, family members, biological constructed, the people you invest in in your workplace and your friends, making room for that side of us that cares about others as well as, as advancing ourselves is who we are. And if, we, if women had run the world from the beginning, this would be so obvious. It, it, you just can't imagine it. So many men feel it just as much as we do, and yet they're not able to give voice and to claim that part of who they are, of who we are. So we need to go forward and have this conversation about equality and advancing women, but ultimately about equality for all of us, men and women, equality for competition and the ability to work, but, comp but also for the incredibly important work of care. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Anne-Marie Slaughter. And that, I think, has hit on so many themes that affect all of us, including me. I'm a divorced, single, working mom. I deal with childcare issues all the time. <laughs> it's really hard. So thank you for touching on those themes. Uh, just a quick note, I neglected to mention earlier that we have someone else I'd like to recognize who's joining us today, San Francisco Assessor Recorder Carmen Chu. Thank you so much for being here. Appreciate your time. Next, we'll discuss women and work and the important workplace policies and benefits that are critical to gender equity and opportunity in the workplace to address what it takes to allow women to thrive in the local economy. We have assembled a very distinguished panel. Our discussion will be moderated by a respected journalist and author, the founder of the popular website Jezebel.com, and the senior vice president at First Look Media, Anna Holmes. <laughs> And also joining Anna is a member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, representing District 8, Scott Wiener. The Legal Director of Equal Rights Advocates, Jennifer Reich.
Another member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors representing Districts 4, Katie Tang. And the director of the Food Labor Research Center at UC Berkeley, Saru Jayaraman. Thank you all, and I will let Anna Holmes take it from here. Hi everyone, um, I'm thrilled to be here and thanks for the invitation, extending the invitation and I'm thrilled to be able to talk to uh, our distinguished panel about women in the workforce. Um, I think I just wanted to start with having each one of you explain what it is that you do um, for, for the audience and also to explain uh, how, how, you, like, how your work intersects with, with, with gender equity and, 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 and why you think it's important. So I'll let you go first, yeah. <laughs> okay. um, my name is Saru and I... Uh, co-founded an organization just after 9-11 called the Restaurant Opportunity Centers United, Rock United, together with workers who lost their jobs at Windows on the World, which was the restaurant at the top of the World Trade Center. Uh, we've grown uh, since 9-11 into a national organization, including very strong presence here in the Bay Area, uh, of restaurant workers, restaurant employers, about 200 restaurant owners, and several thousand consumer members, all fighting for better wages and working conditions in this industry, which actually is the second largest and absolute fastest growing sector of the economy, including here in the Bay Area. I also am an academic. I teach at UC Berkeley. I run a research center there, and I've written a couple of books on the industry, most recently one called Forked. And we've been leading a campaign to eliminate the lower wage for tipped workers who are in vast majority female. 70% uh, of tipped restaurant workers in the United States and here in California are women. Uh, we've been running a campaign to eliminate the lower wage in 43 states, uh, not in California, uh, which actually has the same wage for tipped and non-tipped workers. But that issue of living off tips here, too, poses incredible problems for millions of women, which I'll talk about. Okay. Great. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Katie Tang, and I serve here on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, one of four women on our incredible board, and I'm glad to be joined by my one of my favorite male colleagues, Scott Wiener, here today. Um, I think that one of the great things about uh, serving in this legislator role here in San Francisco is that we really like to push the envelope on a lot of issues. And we have really especially enjoyed working on issues, trying to make it more family-friendly uh, for parents returning to work. Uh, and um, I will talk a little bit more about that later. But uh, essentially, uh, we really enjoy figuring out what it is that are some of the issues that we deal with not only in the private sector, but also the public sector, and see how it is that we could use legislation as a tool to solve those problems and, again, push not only San Francisco forward, but hopefully uh, the rest of the country as well. Hi, everyone. My name is Jennifer Reich, and I am the legal director of Equal Rights Advocates, which is an organization, a nonprofit civil rights organization that was founded right here in San Francisco in 1974. And we are still based here. We do work nationally to advance gender equity in education and employment for women and girls. And um, we work across uh, different sectors. We, we do litigation and we provide direct legal services. Um, we also uh, do a lot of work in the, at the policy level, both locally. Um, we, we've worked with uh, several members of the boards of supervisors uh, 
of the past few years on some local legislation to support working women. Uh, we also have uh, a lot of work that we do at the grassroots level with organizations like ROC um, and others to really lift up the wages and working conditions of lower wage uh, working women who are of course the vast majority um, of those who are in the workforce. Um, we do a lot of work to end gender-based and race-based occupational segregation and I'm really excited to be here to, to have this really important conversation with all these wonderful allies. Great. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Scott Weiner. I have the honor of uh, representing District 8 on the Board of Supervisors, which is uh, the geographic center of the city, including the Castro, Noe Valley, and some other terrific uh, neighborhoods. And uh, it's a real honor to work with amazing uh, women like Katie Tang and Malia Cohen and our, our fearless uh, leader, the president of the Board of Supervisors, London Breed. Uh, and, uh, you know, the community that I uh, came out of in terms of my activism, the LGBT community, uh, is a community where workplace equity and support uh, is so critically important, uh, whether it's uh, addressing uh, systematic uh, discrimination against our community, uh, whether it's just simply against people being LGBT or based on uh, gender stereotypes, uh, whether it's uh, the huge number of LGBT people who are caregivers, whether it's to uh, someone who is sick at home, for example, during our long uh, HIV epidemic, or for a family member because LGBT people, I mean, disproportionately because they're less likely, we are less likely to have children, particularly uh, gay men. We're sometimes expected to do more in terms of caring for uh, family members. Uh, and so support in the workplace uh, is uh, incredibly important for the community that I came out of. And now being on the board uh, and taking a, you know, an even broader view for all communities, uh, it's something that uh, matters a lot. And as uh, Katie mentioned, we have the luxury in San Francisco of being able to push the progressive envelope in ways that other cities can't. And we have a responsibility to take advantage of that. Um, so sorry, I wanted to address the first question sure. to you. Uh, you had mentioned earlier that you had a report come out yesterday called Behind the Kitchen Door. Yes. Um, and I wanted to know if you can tell us a little bit about what you found and also just about the broader issue of the restaurant industry, the restaurant and food industry, um, how women you know, make up or what, what percentages of, 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 the, of the industry is, is made up of, of women and the particular challenges that they face in that industry. Yeah. So, um, yes, we did release a report yesterday called Behind the Kitchen Door, the promise and opportunity and challenges in the restaurant industry in the Bay Area with some very shocking findings. First of all, um, the industry is ex it's exploding here. It, we are growing at a much faster rate uh, at our industry here in the Bay Area than really anywhere else in the nation. Nationally, about 7 to 8% of all workers in the American workforce work in restaurants. Here in the Bay Area, it's closer to 10%. One in 10 workers in the Bay Area actually works uh, in food service and in the restaurant industry. It's about 200,000 workers and over 10,000 establishments in the Bay Area. Um, and unfortunately, despite all that growth, despite the fact that it's booming, despite the fact that we've got really progressive legislators passing better legislation here than the rest of the country, and despite the fact that wages are higher, in fact, as a result, um, we found the highest rates of racial segregation in this industry here in the Bay Area of anywhere that we've done this study. And we've done this study in 20 locations around the country, and we've surveyed seven or 8,000 workers nationally, and we found the highest rates unfortunately, of racial segregation in the Bay Area, uh, much worse for women of color. What does that mean? 
it means that people of color, and in particular women of color, are segregated into lower level segments of our industry, casual and fast food restaurants, and lower level positions, uh, like bussers and runners and the back of the house, you know, pastry chefs, and not necessarily the best paying positions in our industry, which are those fine dining server and bartending positions, which are held almost exclusively by white people and mostly by white men. Um, and so you can walk out of this Moscone Center and go to any fine dining restaurant here in San Francisco and have lunch or dinner, and you will see what I'm talking about. Your server is more than likely to be white, um, especially if you're eating dinner on a Friday or Saturday night, which is when most tips are earned. Uh, your server is most likely to be a white man. Uh, and you can look at the, the skin color of your bus or runner or the gender of your host and find that those far less tipped positions are likely to be women and likely to be people of color. So segregation has real impacts for women and people of color in our industry, and in particular, the whole system of women having to depend for a large port of their, portion of their income on tips has multiple challenges, multiple challenges. One, uh, the fact that Friday and Saturday night shifts are the best, dinner, going out to dinner on a Friday or Saturday night is the most lucrative time. You can imagine the havoc that wreaks for women in our industry in terms of childcare, in terms of unpredictable, unpredictable schedules. I mean, we're not just talking about not knowing when you'll finish your shift. You're talking about finishing a shift at 3 and 4 in the morning, and so really needing overnight care, not non-traditional hours. You need overnight care. Um, and that just is missing from the childcare policy debate and something that really needs to be part of the conversation as the largest and fastest growing industry in the Bay Area. Um, second big issue related to that um, is, of course, scheduling itself, the fact that workers have absolutely no control over their schedules. And yes, there have been great attempts and movements forward around scheduling, but a lot more needs to be done on that. Um, and then the third big issue is when you live at, with so much of your income dependent on tips, you are subject to the absolute worst sexual harassment of any industry, really, in the Bay Area or in the United States. Because when you're a woman, and most women don't work in fine dining, they work in Olive Garden, and yes, you have an Olive Garden here in San Francisco, and you know, Denny's and IHOP and, and casual restaurants throughout the Bay Area, um, you must tolerate whatever a customer might do to you, however they may touch you or treat you or talk to you, because the customer is always right, because the customer is providing so much of your income. And so we find that women are having to essentially tolerate all kinds of inappropriate sexual harassment and even sexual violence um, to feed their families. And so a very wide range of issues for the largest employer of women in the Bay Area. Um, well, a question that I have is, so... How, how, when you say we're not doing enough, what, what can be done? Does it have to be legislative? Um, is it something else? Like <laughs> yeah, so glad you asked that. Um, so there are a number of policies we would suggest, um, both around segregation, uh, whether it be looking at um, implicit bias, as I'm sure we're going to hear about, um, auditing in this industry, certification, things that would create equal opportunity. But uh, a lot can be done on all of these issues working with what we call high-road employers. So my new book, Forked, is actually profiling wonderful high-road restaurant owners all over the country and many here in the Bay Area that are working with us to set the standard, a different kind of standard, how things can be done differently. So we've been working with these great, fabulous employers to actually form an alternative restaurant association called RAISE, Restaurants Advancing Industry Standards in Employment. They've come with us to City Hall and to Congress to say we actually believe in better ways 
wages so workers aren't so dependent on tips, better childcare policy, uh, you know, better policy that would address racial and gender segregation, um, and certainly better culture change around sexual harassment and sexual violence, and they have modeled it in their restaurants. So I think it's a combination of both policy and working with the fabulous High Road restaurant employers, uh, many of whom are listed in the book, and you can find out who they are and support them as consumers. Um, we need to support restaurants that are doing it right. As consumers, can we, um, I mean, how would, how would you feel about exhorting people when they do go to these restaurants to, I don't want to say confront the owner of the owners there, but certainly to like no, make it clear that, you know, because I, I certainly notice this, I don't live in San Francisco, I live in New York, but there, you know, there is a, a, a gender and racial breakdown. A lot of the people of color are working in the back, right. are, are coming to collect your dishes, and a lot of the, the, the people who are getting most of the tips and most of the customer time are, are white and male. And, and sadly, as progressive as we are, as racially conscious as we are, our rate of racial segregation and the race pay gap here is twice the rate of Seattle and the highest rate of any city we've ever studied in the country. And that's incredibly depressing to me as a Bay Area resident. It's a $6 per hour wage gap between white men and, pe and people of color and women of color, especially in five do fine dining. That's unacceptable in the Bay Area, which is majority people of color. Uh, and, and so, yes, as consumers, we ask you to look at ForkTheBook.com. You'll see ratings of restaurants on these issues, but it also gives you tools to communicate via Yelp or Twitter to restaurants and say, I love the food, love the service, but I want to see more women of color on your dining floor. I want to know that you do something when, when the workers are harassed by customers or coworkers. Um, I care about these issues, and I want you to know as a customer, I'll only keep coming here if you do something about it. So, Katie. Uh, okay. Uh, you, you mentioned passing legislation as a as a as a tool um, for you know, fighting for gender equity with regards to women in the workforce. Can you talk a little bit a bit more about how passing legislation is effective and maybe how it how it how, the problems it can't solve? Sure. Uh, so some of the the things that I worked on, and I know that Supervisor Weiner will also speak to some of his work uh, on a similar um, topic as well. Um, I know all the issues that you had mentioned. We have been trying to at least experiment first with uh, city government to see how uh, different policy changes can help, uh, whether it's uh, parents, both both genders um, returning to work, whether it's a mother or father or any other orientation. And so, for example. Um, Last year, we had actually worked on a policy, our paid parental leave policy. Uh, city government in San Francisco, we're very lucky. We are actually ahead of the curve in terms of the entire nation. We offer our employees 12 weeks of paid time off after you have had a child, you have adopted, uh, or you're fostering a child as well. And I think that that's really important. We call our policy a paid parental leave policy. It's not a paid maternity leave policy because we want to encourage both parents to be able to take that time off, uh, feel comfortable going back to work, um, and making sure that, yes, they do have their job when they return. Uh, so that's something that uh, we worked on uh, in city government, again, 12 weeks here in San Francisco. But uh, if you look at the rest of the other cities in, in the entire United States, we lag behind as an industrialized country. Uh, it's really shocking. 
Now, studies after studies have shown that the ideal time that you would give a parent to take time off to bond and to do breastfeeding and so forth is about five or six months. Um, and again, there are many other countries that are just well ahead and doing, offering much, much more, and even on a national scale, on, as a national policy. We in the United States, we offer zero as a national policy. So that, to me, is really shocking, um, and it's something that I hope to continue working on. And again, I'll, I will let uh, Supervisor Wiener talk about what he's doing in the private sector. Now, some of, another issue that uh, we have uh, begun working on, and I want to thank our city administrator, Naomi Kelly, who is here with us today, uh, is creating a lactation in the workplace policy for our city. And again, I hope to bring that uh, into the private sector uh, in the future as well. But first, we're starting with city government to actually have our Department of Human Resources work with all of our city departments to figure out how each city department can come up with a lactation policy to support mothers who are coming back to work and who want to actually provide breast milk for their children. Um, I began working on this issue because uh, one of my legislative aides, I think she's here somewhere, Ashley, um, just came back from maternity leave, uh, had a baby, and luckily my colleague Supervisor Malia Cohen had uh, coincidentally just uh, allowed us to turn a, uh, a restroom on our floor right by our office into a lactation room. Now, this sounds like, wow, we should have had this already a long time ago, um, or just in general. Um, but after we had turned that, that bathroom into a lactation room, we could not believe how many working mothers inside our city hall building was, was asking for access, requesting that they actually use this so that they didn't have to use that closet on the third floor uh, separated with shower curtains. Uh, and so it, it's really amazing and it was so transformative to see that and now we're working on figuring out how it is that we could use different strategies to help accommodate uh, mothers who, again, want to lactate and actually uh, provide fresh breast milk to their children. So we're looking into lactation pods, for example, uh, prefabricated and seeing how we can incorporate that into uh, facilities in City Hall. We also, a part of our uh, policy is that whenever we're building new uh, office space for our city um, workers, that we actually have to incorporate a lactation facility uh, in that uh, building. And so you might wonder, okay, well, we have federal laws around lactation policies. We've got state law as well, but they really don't go far enough. All it is that they say is you must offer a space that is not a restroom and that might be close to your, uh, your office space. But other than that, they really don't offer anything such as you need to have a locked door, maybe you need to have an electrical outlet so you can have a refrigerator, um, maybe a sink, and so forth, uh, making it comfortable for the mothers. And I think this is really important because you know, it's been recommended uh, that you actually breastfeed uh, your child, exclusively breastfeed, for the first six months of their life. Now, for working women, only 10% do that. And so it's, I mean, the statistics are really startling, um, but, and you know, we can cite countless studies about the health benefits and so forth. But I think the most eye-opening experience for me in seeing uh, as we put forth our lactation policy is just how many women came up to us and said, wow, I wish I had this, or wow, I felt really uncomfortable asking my boss to be able to go and, and use the facility to do something, or they told me to go and do that on the restroom.
you know, on the toilet. So um, I really hope that our policy will really spark a dialogue to ensure that women feel comfortable asking uh, for the proper facilities to be able to, to uh, lactate and to provide breast milk for their children. Um, and again, it's, it's really an ongoing dialogue that we're going to have to have uh, about how comfortable women feel about asking for certain things that they really, they really deserve. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So I wanted to ask you, Jennifer, about the, about the California Fair Pay Act and the genesis of it and your work on it and, and also how, it, how the situation in California compares to other parts of the country. I mean, we all think of California as being especially progressive, and it is. Right, um, but I right. Well, I was actually context. thinking about the enactment of the Fair Pay Act while Katie was talking because I actually was nursing um, uh, my, my twin girls during the time when we were drafting the legislation last year. And... Uh, I actually had the experience of having to go to uh, the senator's staff and ask them if there was a place where I could go in the Capitol <laughs> to go pump. So um, I know that uh, it's, it's an experience that um, I think everyone can, who wanted, you know, who wants to be able to do that for their kids when they go back to work um, has, has had that and, and knows how awkward it can be when there's not a space. Um, and, and just an acknowledgement that this is part of life and that, and that a lot of people, uh, a lot of working moms really need that. So I really appreciate your work on that. Um, when we were, when, you know, we talk about the Fair Pay Act and we talk about fair pay, a lot of, um, you know, we, we, we have to, I think it's important to remember what, what the problem is that that legislation is seeking to solve. And um, the Fair Pay Act of 2015, which was passed last year and signed into law on October 6th by Governor Brown, gave California the strongest equal pay law in the country. Um, but what does that mean? What is an equal pay law, and, and why, do we, why did we need to change the one that we had? Um, we actually had had an Equal Pay Act here in California for uh, 14 years before federal legislation was ever passed. We were an innovator then, and we were a for, you know, an innovator now. Uh, we passed it in 1949, and, and basically it, it Modified the principle of equal pay for equal work, um, which is something that, you know, frankly, you know, when you say it, it's, it's sounds pretty uncontroversial. Um, and yet it's still, you know, it's still not the reality. The reality is still that, you know, when we talk about what the gender wage gap is, we're talking about uh, a difference here in California. The wage gap overall is, uh, you will hear the statistic cited, 84 cents on the dollar what 84 cents, what dollar, what is that even talking about? That is referring to the overall median uh, of wages earned by full-time full working women to full-time working men. So yes, it compares women who are working as uh, daycare providers and as restaurant servers to men who are working as construction workers and auto mechanics and also as restaurant servers and as bartenders. So it's comparing, you know, different kinds of apples to different kinds of apples and sometimes some apples to oranges. Um, but overall, what it speaks to is that there is still this persistent gap between what women who are working full-time and what men are working full-time are able to earn in this economy. And there are several really important driving reasons for that. And then there are some ways in which the law that we passed and the laws that we need to pass and are pushing to pass um, uh, at, at different levels, uh, local, state, and national, are seeking to address those factors. Um, so 
one thing I did want to point out in terms of how we're doing in California, overall, while we're doing you know, a little bit better when you compare all women to all men, we are doing much, much worse when it comes to women of color, especially Latina women. Latina women uh, working full-time in California make an average of less than 43 cents for every dollar earned by a white man. That is just unacceptable. It's appalling, and it also um, it points to a tremendous problem with occupational segregation. It points to a tremendous problem of a minimum wage that is a poverty wage, um, even with the recent increase. Um, it also points to a, a, a lot of bias um, that I think is affecting women at the start of their careers all the way through as they make their way uh, up the career ladder, if there is a ladder to climb. Um, and, it, and it speaks to the barriers that uh, we still have in terms of women, and especially women of color, getting into the higher paid occupations and industries in the first place. So what does the Fair Pay Act do? It, it basically, it strengthened the equal pay law that we have in some pretty substantial ways. First of all, um, it eliminated the requirement that in order for a woman to say she's entitled to equal pay, um, that she has to be working in the same establishment, the same physical establishment as, as the comparator that she, that she wants to show is making the same wage. I mean, it, this was really, when you think about it, this was passed back in 1949 when the economy was very different, when there was no such, nobody called an employer a brick-and-mortar employer because all employers were brick-and-mortar employers and they all generally existed in one place or maybe in two places, but it was very rare that you had, you know, these numbers, huge numbers of people working for chains and franchises that have, you know, like Starbucks every other block. And it made no sense to us that if a barista at Starbucks on Market and Third was making, you know, $2 an hour less than a barista working in the market on the one on Kearney, you know, why on earth should they have to only stick to looking at their own establishment? The second thing is it replaced the idea of equal work with substantially similar work. Now, actually, what this did was it codified what the courts already said uh, equal work was supposed to mean. It was never supposed to mean you had to have exactly the same job title or exactly the same thing. It was supposed to mean that you did substantially equal work when it came to skills, effort, and responsibility. So it codified that idea to prevent backsliding and sort of random, weird interpretations by courts everywhere. It also strengthened the protections against um, uh, for equal pay by requiring that um, employers demonstrate that there was a bona fide factor other than sex that was not in any way derived from or related to a, sex, uh, a, a difference in pay because of sex. Now, what does that mean? In practice, what that means is that there are certain things that we, that we know employers still do, like rely on people's prior salaries to set starting pay, that almost inevitably, if not inevitably, are going to perpetuate a gender-based wage gap. And, and so um, part of the idea behind that uh, provision of the law was to really try to narrow uh, the, 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 just, the justifications or excuses that could be given for, for gender wage differentials when you have two people who you've already established are doing basically the same job. Um, you have to really have a, a really clear and specific reason that explains the entire difference in pay. And the last big thing that it did was that it really strengthened protections. It made it very explicit that you may not discriminate or retaliate against an employee for talking about pay, for asking about it, or for discussing it and sharing information with their fellow co-workers. It 
what it doesn't do, and what I think we still need to work on, is address the issue of, of pay, of the lack of um, transparency and a lot of secrecy in all kinds of workplaces, whether they have a policy or not that says you're not supposed to talk about pay, which some employers <coughs> in California still do, even though it's illegal. Um, it, there is a huge taboo about um, talking about what you make and, and comparing what you make to others in your own organization. And so we have to really break that up and get people talking. And one of the ways we're trying to do that is by engaging with young people. Um, you know, millennials of color use the internet and, 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 and social media more than any other group of folks. And it's really important that we start to connect the dots again between policy and culture. So that's one area where we're really hoping to work. Um, but the, but the law, where the law starts, we have a lot more work to do. We know that one of the big reasons for the huge gender wage gap that costs women uh, an average of almost half a million dollars uh, over their lifetimes, uh, and much more for women of color, is that once you become a mother, uh, you face a huge hit, both directly by, by the unpaid time off of work that you have to take if you, if you want to recover from giving birth, let alone bond with your child. Um, secondly, though, the hit that your career takes when you go back. And, the, and then on top of that, you have a lot of bias, implicit, unconscious, whatever you want to call it, or just straight up gender stereotypes about women who come back to work as moms being seen as less competent, less deserving of a higher pay, less deserving of high privilege and authority jobs. Mm -hmm. Whereas actually, when men become fathers, they uh, get an average bump in their salary. They are seen as more competent, more you know, worthy of promotion and advancement. So we have a lot of work to do on that front as well. Well, I want to have Scott talk about men. <laughs> when we were backstage, you, you, you were mentioning the, like, the district that you, that you represent um, and how I th think you said has the highest concentration of, of, of gay men um, in San Francisco or in the country and also how you got involved in, uh, I want to know how you got involved in issues of parental leave and gender equity and what, sure. what drew you to it. Sure. Um, so uh, earlier this year, I um, authored uh, legislation uh, that passed unanimously at the Board uh, of Supervisors that makes San Francisco uh, the first place in the country uh, to guarantee 100% wage replacement, fully paid parental leave uh, for six weeks for both parents, um, adoption, uh, uh, births, um, and uh, it was a huge uh, step forward. And, and I uh, it definitely, I think, raised some eyebrows. Um, why is a, a gay man uh, doing this, uh, and I think there is uh, there's a stereotype uh, that uh, in the LGBT community, because we're uh, perhaps less likely to have kids, that we somehow, particularly gay men, uh, don't you know don't really care about um, family issues or, or children's issues. And if there was ever any um, uh, any validity to that, I don't know that there really was. But if there ever was, it certainly uh, is not true today. Uh, in addition to the increasing number of LGBT people who do have kids, and LGBT people have always had kids, um, but more so today. Uh, but beyond that, even for those of us who don't have kids, when you look in San Francisco at some of our uh, election maps uh, for a school bond or any kid-focused or family-focused ballot measure, the Castro is always off the charts in terms of support. So this is a community that does uh, care deeply about uh, about children, about families, about having healthy uh, and, and successful kids. 
Uh, and so, uh, you know, Supervisor Tang uh, started the conversation, I think, in City Hall recently with her ballot measure last year to make our city paid parental leave more equitable so that both parents can take full paid parental leave and, and bond with the kids. So it's uh, in, a, in a heterosexual uh, couple, it's not just the mom, it's both parents, and we know that families are more successful when both parents are bonding with the child. Uh, but uh, I, my chief of staff, uh, Andres, was preparing for his uh, uh, parental leave, uh, which he is on right now. He and his partner um, had a child through surrogacy, and he was doing research about his benefits, uh, which are great, as Katie mentioned. Uh, but he started doing broader research and, of course, quickly realized what I think anyone who's looked at the issue knows uh, is that once you get beyond uh, a place like the city and county of San Francisco government uh, or certain large companies that have very generous paid parental leave, most workers get little or nothing. Uh, and in California, we're one of just a handful of states that at least offers something. Specifically, you get six weeks of bonding leave where you receive 55% of your salary, and it's paid exclusively from worker contributions to the state disability fund. Uh, so for a lot of people, for some people, 55% is fine. You have a partner who's working, your salary is high enough that you can deal with it. But for many, many workers, particularly lower wage workers, taking a 45% pay cut, uh, it's not going to work. And so you have a lot of people who are choosing, do I bond with my new child or do I pay the bills? Do I go into debt so I can bond with my child? Do I maybe not, uh, uh, do, I, do I fall behind on, on payments? What do I do? And no one should ever have to make that choice. Uh, so our legislation provided or, and provides that um, the employer for, um, for, for companies with 20 or more workers will put in the other 45%. Uh, and uh, it was, uh, you know, it was it was an interesting conversation. And anytime we're working, when we work closely with the business community to move this forward, and the business community really uh, stepped up and was collaborative and 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 didn't just say no, um, provided feedback and ideas, and we were able to work together uh, collaboratively uh, to make this happen. And uh, it, we're now moving towards implementation phasing, and in the budget this year, we're. We're going to get some funding so that we can do good outreach and education uh, to businesses and to workers to make sure that everyone knows about it and knows how to comply. Uh, but the, the, the really great thing is shortly after we passed it, it phases in starting January 1st over the course of 12 months for varying size companies. Um, immediately, several uh, employers in San Francisco just announced that they were implementing it right away. Uh, and it was a combination of sometimes you see the writing on the wall and so you do it, but I think it was, uh, there were employers who really the, they, they were uh, inspired just to step up and it's great. I think we have such a huge amount of work to do in this country around paid family leave in general. Uh, and uh, I think we're moving in the right direction. Um, I, thank you. <laughs> I, uh, I have a little countdown clock here, which, which, which has run out, but I want to like, I, I want to keep talking, but I want to just finish the, 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 the session with a question directed at all of you, if anyone wants to jump in, which is about, um, 
wage inequality or gender inequality and whether that's exacerbated in the Bay Area because of the, the large amount of very, very, very wealthy people who are concentrated here and who are moving here and um, the, the, ways, the ways in which you know, the rich and the poor are even, or the, the differences are even more stark. Is, is that something that you feel you can speak to or, or is, this, you know, is, this, is this happening all over the country but it seems especially mm-hmm. um, pronounced in the Bay Area? We're seeing it in the restaurant industry. I mean, the industry in the Bay Area is even more a reflection of the hourglass economy that the whole nation is certainly going through highest rates of income inequality, even surpassing the Gilded Age, Mm -hmm. way more so in the Bay Area where fine dining is exploding and the number of fine dining jobs is much higher here than it is in the rest of the country because you've got a very, very wealthy population that's eating out literally all the time. Um, that's v- that's very food obsessed, mm-hmm. honestly, and um, <laughs> um, and so an explosion of fine dining jobs held almost exclusively by white workers yeah. and white men, um, a reflection of the explosion of, of this, in, you know, these wealthy people, but also. Uh, those same workers, actually, frankly, whether they're in fine dining or the rest of the industry, which is immense, mm-hmm. not able to live anywhere near where they work, right. anywhere near where they right. work, because they're being just completely displaced by um, just the exploding number of million-dollar homes yeah. in the region, whether that's, frankly, Oakland yeah. or, or San Francisco. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah, I mean, I, the, the wage inequity issues, it's, it's very, I think it's really important to remember just the numbers of folks who are living, you know, in poverty or near the poverty line include a lot, in fact, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of, of working moms who are supporting families. Um, you know, even here in the Bay Area where we have some cities, including San Francisco itself and Oakland, that have higher than average, you know, higher than the state minimum wage, when you work full-time, 52 weeks a year, 40 hours a week, and that's a pretty rare occurrence for any worker in a, in a lot of low-wage industries to actually get that many hours consistently, but even if you could work every week of the year at that wage, um, you're still going to be just barely above the federal poverty line for a family of, of three, of one adult and two children. Um, and, you know, with a city where the average rent is, you know, now over $3,500, I mean, there's just there's no way to make that work. Um, And so, you know, in terms of what we need to do to fight gender-based wage inequity, I think we need to look at the inequities that that we're struggling with in our economy generally, and we have to really start to lift up the floor um, that's underneath all of us and make sure that there is a floor there because in many industries that, I think this was mentioned um, uh, in Anne-Marie Slaughter's uh, opening keynote, that there are vast numbers of women especially who are working in industries where there basically is no floor. And those are the women who are caregiving, um, who are domestic workers, who are um, child care workers, both formal and informal. Um, so all these issues are all connected, and um, I think we just need to, to keep pushing, pushing the envelope and lifting the floor from all directions. Um, I want to thank the, the panel and the audience for being here and for you. all your great insights. Thank you. And we're going <laughs> to... Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, the founder and CEO of PolicyLink, Angela Glover Blackwell.
such a pleasure to be here. It is so exciting to see the Bay Area continuing the momentum that started in Washington, D.C. last week with the United State of Women's Summit. It was very exciting, and so is this. <laughs> I'm personally so gratified to be here because the thing that I want to talk about is the thing that I talk about every place I go, and that is what's happening with people of color in this country and why it is so important to every aspect of this country that we get that agenda right. I'm in between the conversation you just had about workforce and before a conversation about racial bias in the workplace. And I thought it was important to take a moment to step back before we started talking about racial bias and to think about what's happening in the country. What's happening in the state of California? What is the thing that is going to define the first part of the 21st century? And I am absolutely convinced that it is going to be the nation's changing demographics. When we think about it, we know that California is way ahead of the nation in terms of becoming a place in which the majority are people of color. 73% of all children under 18 in California are of color, Native American, Asian, Latino, African American, other. The United States of America is gradually getting there. They're going to get there a little more quickly than they think. By 2044, the majority of all people in this country will be of color. But by 2030, the majority of the young workforce will be of color. The majority of all babies born in this country since 2012 have been of color. The majority of all girl babies born in this country since 2012 have been of color. And so when we think about how soon the nation is going to feel majority people of color, it's going to be earlier than 2044 because the people who will be buying homes, sending their children to the public schools, the ones who really have stake in the game around democracy and participation, that young group is going to be of color in the whole nation very soon. And so as we think about how it is that women are going to make a difference going forward, it is clear that we have to think about women, but we have to understand within women what's happening to women of color. Because we are at a point in which the nation can see its future. And it is a 17-year-old black girl. It's a 12-year-old Latina. It's a 7-year-old Hmong girl. What happens to those girls will determine the fate of the nation. It will determine the fate of the nation. Therefore, we have to think about an agenda that builds full inclusion, that can tap all of those assets that these young women and their male counterparts bring to the conversation. We have to think about how it is in everything we do. We create pathways for those on whom the nation is dependent. When we are looking at those circumstances, though, we have a huge challenge. Because at the same time that we're experiencing this extraordinary demographic shift, inequality has become massive, vast, and toxic. It's not just inequality that we have to worry about. Inequality at some level we know will be with us. But it is this toxic inequality that really has created a crisis. We're at a point in which toxic inequality is hollowing out the middle class, it's baking in poverty, and it's stalled mobility. 
the things that have really been hallmarks of a nation that prides itself on creating opportunity are being severely threatened as inequality is becoming baked in. There was a time when economists thought that inequality was good for growth, but now that is out the window and Joe Stiglitz and Robert Reich and others have made it very clear that the level and the type and the characteristics of the inequality we're experiencing now is really stifling growth. Even the International Monetary Fund is saying that. They did a study where they looked at 100 countries and they found that for every 10% decrease in inequality, there was a 50% lengthening in the growth period. Uh, a good friend of mine, Manuel Pastor, and a colleague of his, Chris Benner, did a similar study in the United States looking at 100 regions across the United States. And they found that for every 10% decrease in inequality, there was a 50% lengthening in the period of growth. When we think about it, this notion of equity really is essential for the future of the nation. And when I use the term equity, what I mean is just and fair inclusion into a society in which all can participate, prosper, and reach their full potential. When we think about equity, we often think about the fairness part of it. We think about it in the way that I just described it. But when you look at the inequality problem, when you look at the shifting demographics, it becomes pretty clear that if we get the equity agenda right, we get the nation right. Equity is the antidote to inequality. And we think that equity is the superior growth model for the nation. The organization that I work for, PolicyLink, has something on our website which I guarantee you you will enjoy playing with, and it's called the National Equity Atlas. What it does is it looks at 150 regions across the country, the United States of America, 50 states, 100 of the largest cities. And it's a lot of data, but it's put together in a narrative. The first part of the narrative tells the story about the changing demographics. So you can go to whatever area you're interested in, you can see the shifting demographics from 1980 to 2040. The next part of the narrative lifts up about 32 indicators of economic well-being. And Broken down by race, you can look at those economic indicators and see how are the American people doing and how are people of color doing in particular. So it gives you that sense of where are we. The last part, though, is the punchline. What it does is it looks at what would be the impact on the GDP if we got rid of racial disparities in terms of income if the curve of income did not have differences based on race. So the people who were making the lowest wages, there were no differences based on race, the same for the highest. If we eliminated racial disparities in income, the GDP would be $2.1 trillion higher every year. That's 2012, so that would be cumulative over time. In 2012, in the San Francisco Bay Area, the GDP would have been $117 billion higher. So not only is equity important for fairness and justice and inclusion, equity is a superior growth model. So if we think about that, I think that it's pretty clear that we need to get this agenda right, not just for women of color, not just for people who are being left behind, but for everybody. It sort of reminds me of the curb cut effect. Uh, you know those curb cuts. You see them every place that you go. They're there because of the advocacy of people with disabilities, particularly people in wheelchairs that 
they're there because even though people with disabilities had been able to get legal rights, those legal rights were hollow if people couldn't really maneuver through the communities where they wanted to get jobs and participate. Those curb cuts, though, how many times have you been pushing a baby carriage and been so glad that curb cut was there and you didn't have to pick up that contraption from corner to corner? How many times have workers been pushing carts and pulling wagons and had their load lightened because of those curb cuts? How many times have people been able to relax a little bit as their new bike riders, seven, eight years old, were traversing the community sidewalk to sidewalk and not having to ride in the street? That's an example of when we get something right for those who are most vulnerable, the benefits cascade up. They just cascade up. We get it right for those who are most vulnerable. We get it right for everybody. The same is true if you think about those bike lanes in the street. Those bike lanes are there because of the vulnerability of people on bikes. But yet, in city after city where those bike lanes have been installed, traffic accidents have gone down in general, you get it right for those who are most vulnerable. You get it right for everybody. The bike lanes organize the traffic in ways that the traffic didn't realize it needed to be organized before we focus on those who are most vulnerable. It's that curb cut effect that will be in effect if we get the equity agenda right. We get it right for those who are most vulnerable. We get it right for everybody. And what does it take to get it right? Well, we know that a large part of it has to do with people who go to work every day should not be poor. If people go to work every day should not be poor, so we need to lift that up as a value. We need to grow good jobs in this country. We need to make sure that we're investing in entrepreneurship, but we need to invest in entrepreneurship with the people who are going to hire those who need jobs most. Women and people of color tend to hire women and people of color. Women who are Latino, Asian, and African Americans are three times as likely to start businesses. But yet, in terms of capital and support, they're not able to start businesses that are robust enough for them to hire all the people they want to hire. We need to grow good jobs. We need to make sure that we're lifting the wages for jobs. People should be making living wage jobs with the kind of benefits that you've heard about. When we do that, we don't just help those who are being left behind. We help everybody. The other part of the equity agenda is we need to build capabilities. Our girls need STEM education. They need to be ready for 21st century jobs. And everybody needs to start getting the higher education that it is really going to take to be effective in this society in the workforce going forward. By 2018, 48% of all jobs in this country will require at least an associate's degree. Only 28% of black people, 28% of people who are Latino, 14% of people who are foreign-born Latino have an associate's degree. We have to invest in making sure that the education that the nation needs people to have is available to the people who we're going to be dependent on as we go forward. And we have to make sure that we are really expanding opportunity. We live, sadly, in a nation, in a state. We live in environments in which where you live is a proxy for opportunity. You tell me your address and I know way too much about your chances. I know whether or not if you're lucky enough to own a home that it has any value you can pull out of it if you need it. I know whether or not your children are likely to be able to go to a good school. I know whether or not you live near a job or near a public transit system that can connect you with jobs. I even know how long you're going to live and how well you'll live while you live. You tell me your zip code and I can tell you your life expectancy. That is wrong. So we need to invest in making sure 
that people who are low income do not have to live in communities that isolate them. We need to invest in those communities and make sure every community is a community of opportunity. Every community needs to be a community of opportunity. And in order to be able to achieve these equity goals I just talked about, our business community has to do a very different job. We need to make sure that we are hiring people, that we're hiring people of color, we're hiring women of color, we're hiring men of color, that we are providing access to the people who are going to need it for businesses to flourish, for society to flourish. But it's not just hiring. We have to have the right kind of circumstances. We have to have parental leave. We have to have childcare. We have to have all those things that allow for women to be able to thrive in the workplace, no matter what their circumstance. But we also need to make sure that we have have women in governance. We need to have women on boards because we need for corporations to be able to make the right decisions that it takes from a certain kind of sensibility of who's doing the governance. We need to also be thinking about this though. What are the services, what are the products that are being produced by businesses? We need, we need grocery stores in low-income communities. We need things that allow for families to be able to uh, reach their full potential. All of these things require that we have a vastly different population in our businesses, people who understand the challenges that are prepared to go forward. And you know, whenever we're having a public policy debate in this country, we look to our business leaders to be leaders, to step up on the right public policy issues. It's not just those people who are working for social change that have to speak out about childcare. It's not just those people who are advocates for social change that have to speak up for living wages. It's not just people who are advocates for social change that have to speak up for affordable housing that allows families to connect to opportunity and connect to jobs. Business leaders have to do that as well. And it's not until we change who's making decisions within businesses that we're going to have those policy partners that we need. So if this is what we need, a fully inclusive society, one that values equity. If this is what we need, making sure the people who are going to be the future can lead to the future that we need, that they need, that we need, that the nation needs, then we're going to have to do this. Mayor Libby Schaaf challenged us to take some action. Let's start talking about race. Nobody wants to talk about race. It is such a painful thing in this state, in this nation, but we have to start talking about race. We have to understand with specificity who's being left behind and why are they being left behind and what can we do to change it. We have to start challenging those things that have been around us and have influenced us way too much. It's not until... It's not until we have fully unleashed the potential and the promise in all of us that we can unlock the promise of the nation. Thank you. And now it's time for a quick poll. Please take out your conference app, select polls, and answer the questions for this morning's session. He's the boss. She's bossy. The negative way women are perceived at the office in a new ad for Pantene that's gone viral. It's hit a nerve. So we set out to find the truth. Are women who act exactly the same as men seen differently? 
Listen to this woman. How do you feel about her as a job candidate? I know the Windows operating systems like the back of my hand, no problem. Now, listen to him. I know the Windows operating systems like the back of my hand, no problem. The candidates in these videos are actors in a Yale University hiring experiment. The resumes, identical. The interviews, identical. I'm extremely good, good at sizing up people, people quickly and then delegating responsibility accordingly. The only difference is gender. But when it comes to who got the job? I thought the male applicant had better soft skills. I'd say the woman was um, arrogant and overselling. In hundreds of evaluations, the female job seekers come off as more aggressive, are rated less likable, and they're less likely to be hired. Isn't it a catch-22? You're supposed to be strong to get that job, mm -hmm. and you're saying if you're too strong, you won't get it. You need to behave in this dominant way to advance as a woman in the workplace, but you're seen negatively because that's not how we expect women to behave. And if you think this is just male bias, it's not. Both men and women doing the hiring made the same call. I think there's a level of arrogance that becomes, that might be okay to be a manager, but then there's a step above, and I thought she was slightly above that. So let's talk. And when we revealed our study results... I was surprised by my uh, reaction. What does that say about us? We have a long way to go. Ladies and gentlemen, the executive director of the Stanford University Clayman Institute for Gender Research, Lori Nishiura McKenzie. So for more than 30 years, women have out-earned men in the attainment of undergraduate degrees. Yet despite this, as we've heard this morning, there are far too, women, too few women at the top and far too many women at the bottom. And so as Mayor Schaff said this morning, let's not only look at the big reasons, the reasons we know, pay inequity, let's also look at the invisible, re at the invisible reasons. And so what I'm going to do in the next 15 minutes is give you a primer on unconscious bias. So hold on. I want to start with this optical illusion. Look at squares A and B. How many people in the room think squares A and B are the same color? Okay. How many of them you think they're different colors? All right. Would you be surprised to learn they're the same color? What is happening is that your brain is imagining that the cylinder is casting a shadow and it's filling in the blanks of what you expect to see. And like an optical illusion, bias can affect what you actually see. Like you saw in the resume studies in the, in the video, the exact same script can sound remarkably different when it's enacted by a man or enacted by a woman. So I want to give this primer today so that we can join together and block not only the things we see, but the things that we cannot see, the invisible glue that keeps change from progressing despite all of our best efforts. At the Clayman Institute, we call this effort C-bias, block bias. Because if it's implicit or unconscious, we have to first be able to see it, that we ourselves are prone to this in order to then block it and ensure that everybody has a fair opportunity to be both a great leader and a great, a great caregiver. Often when we talk about unconscious bias, we talk about it as the cognitive function 
like the optical illusion that help, has us make errors in our decision making. You know, there's a book called Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. How many of you read that? And he talks about the development of expertise that enables, for example, an art dealer to tell a fake in the blink of an eye. But at the end of the book, Gladwell talks about the fact that we don't develop the same expertise about people. He took what is called the implicit association test. You can take this yourself online. It's at Project Implicit at Harvard. And in this test, researchers wanted to get at what was unconscious, what was implicit. Because people, when they were asked, no longer overtly said, men are smarter than women. But when they make decisions, they acted as if they still were overtly saying these things. So this test gauges your implicit associations, how easy it is for you to associate certain kinds of people with certain kinds of attributes. Now, Malcolm Gladwell took this test, looking at the difference between white people and black people, and being a person of color himself, was dismayed to discover that even he had a moderate preference towards whites which shows that biases are based on a shared cultural context. It's not men doing this to women or white people doing it to people of color. We're all doing this. It's part of our shared cultural context. So at this point in the conversation, often it feels a little bit like a, a downer. I've just told you it's a shared cultural context. We all do it, even against people like ourselves. So the Clayman Institute, we started to ask a, a different question. Can we instead find how bias embeds itself in people functions, in how you write a job description, in how you interview, how you assess someone's performance? Can we look at who gets the best assignments and who gets stuck with the office housework? Who's listened to in team meetings and then who gets ignored or overlooked? If we could identify and diagnose how bias works in those functions, then we can give people an opportunity to block that. People often ask, what do you mean an organizational function of bias? Well, I love this resume study. How many of you have seen this resume study? In the 1980s, 5% of top orchestra musicians were women. And people wondered, do you think bias has something to do with this? And instead of just debating, they did an experiment they put up a screen so that the evaluators could no longer see the, the gender of the musicians. Now they had to do something else. A lot of stages are wooden. So if I'm clicking across the platform, the sound of my heels is enough to indicate that I might be a woman. So now they had to put carpet down. The introduction of this screen and the carpet meant that a woman was 50% more likely to advance to the next round. And now top orchestras in the United States are 50%, 40 to 50% women. Now here's the, I know, it's great. Here's the thing though, auditions still require the screen. Because the screen didn't eliminate bias, the screen blocked bias from affecting decision making. So quick word about bias. In social science, bias is considered an error in decision-making. So the evaluators wanted to choose the very best musicians possible, but something they thought they knew about women musicians and something they thought they knew about men musicians 
blocked their ability to make the best decision when they saw the gender of the musicians. How does this work? Imagine you have a bunch of musicians coming on stage every five minutes. You're trying to look for shortcuts in information processing. You might know where someone's from. You might know their zip code, as Angela Glover said. Those shortcuts produce gender bias when we rely on gender stereotypes. As we heard earlier this morning about who's a better leader or who's a better caregiver, when stereotypes around people act as some of those decision-making factors when we're processing a lot of information, that's where gender bias happens. I'm going to show you a resume study similar to the video you saw, the exact same resume. They send it out to psychology departments across the country. The only difference is some recipients get this resume with a man's name on it and some get it with a woman's name on it. Now, I always find this part a little bit amusing. It, they go out to psychology departments across the country. And if you can imagine which department at a university studies bias, which just goes to prove knowing about bias does not allow you to block bias. So we send out this CV it's a very strong CV, and we ask, how likely would your department be to hire this candidate? And simply by changing the name greatly decreases the likelihood that the woman will get hired. 80% of those who received the man's resume said they hire him. Fewer than 50% would hire the woman. Fast forward the study, put more degrees, more grants, more education onto the CV, and you find the difference does decrease. But here's what doesn't decrease. The woman's CV gets four times the doubt-raising statements as the man. Statements like this. I would need to see evidence that she had gotten those grants and publications on her own. Do you hear the higher bar? This is how bias works. Some candidates will have to deliver more proof. They'll have to prove it over and over again in order to have the same consideration. Or the second comment, it would be impossible to make such a judgment without seeing teaching evaluations. Maybe that's actually the right criteria. Maybe this comment shows that we're hiring men without knowing if they are good teachers. That's leniency. So you can start to hear how bias plays out in subtle ways. Some people are going to have to offer more proof, and some people will get by without getting enough scrutiny. So we talked a little bit about gender bias. I also want to show a few other studies, same kind of audit studies, that demonstrate that how it works with, among other dimensions. The bottom comment, two identical resumes, the only difference is that one of the resumes says officer of a parent-teacher association. Now, arguably, you don't have to be a parent to be an officer at a parent-teacher association, but just indicating that on a resume was enough to have the person considered less competent, less committed, offered a lower salary, and be less likely to call back for an interview. That one line. Men did not experience the same penalty. They were more likely to get called back and offered a higher wage. If a job application has what is considered a common African-American name, they're less likely to get called back. And the top one, 
gay men are less likely than straight men to be called back for a job, especially in highly masculinized contexts. Now, this is regional, so you can imagine if you saw a map of the United States, which parts of the United States this would matter less and what parts it would matter more. In California, it, there's really no difference. Now, I want to take a moment and pause. These studies show one dimension, mother versus not mother. But we're all multidimensional. I am both a woman and I'm Asian. And given the context of what's demanded, my race and my gender intermix with each other. So Asians are known to be very good at task orientation, very analytical, which might have explained when I went to business school why people wanted to be on my statistics study group. <laughs> Little did they know. <laughs> Worked for me, though. Um, Yet when I rise to management as an Asian who's known as very analytical and very good at details, that's a disadvantage for me for leadership, which requires presence, authority. So remember that while I'm talking about bias almost in a binary sense, men versus women, it's multidimensional, it changes in context, and can even change across the life, um, the career of a person. So as we just heard, stereotypes affect the very standard by which we evaluate people. Some people, again, getting a higher bar to pass and others getting leniency. A second dimension is demonstrated in this study. This time we have two different resumes. It's for the position of police chief. And if you think about police chief in my head, unlike the awesome fire chief that's coming in later today, I picture a, a, a man. So we ask, what's more important for the position of police chief, more education? And I think of this as police academy, which probably shows my age. Or more experience, I think of this as beat work, right? What's more important for the position of police chief? And with no names on the resume, the people say education. Now let's start putting names on. Let's put the man's name on the preferred resume and the woman's name on the other resume. And as predicted, more education wins again. We're going to mix it up for the third round. We're going to put the woman's name on the preferred resume and the man's name on the other one, and we pick the man. And when asked why, why is this the best candidate, the people say, oh, because he has more experience. So in this way, the very criteria we use will shift to justify what is probably a gut or stereotypical response to a question. So I've let you know that we unconsciously raise or lower the bar, we unconsciously shift our criteria. So how do we see the unseen? Now, this is another optical illusion. How many of you see an old face? Right? And how many see a young face? I have this theory in Silicon Valley, we only see the young face. It's a little age bias in Silicon Valley. Okay. Here's what we know from neuroscience. Once you can see this, you cannot unsee it. So I saw this as a child and then saw it as adult decades later, and I still could see it. So my goal today is to help you see what is unseen so that you can block bias and have it be one of your actions you take. Okay. The most common way that we transmit, transmit culture, replicate culture, is through language. So we're going to do a little exercise. Describe a top performer. Just write down one word, two words, behaviors and attributes. Think of a specific person. So in my neighborhood, there's one woman who organizes our block parties. She 
is our neighborhood's top performer. Could be someone at work, community members. So just think of a specific person and write down a few words describing the behaviors and attributes of this top performer. Okay? Specific. Now come with me on a thought experiment. This would never happen. But imagine I've taken your top performer away. I'm going to show you two descriptions to replace your top performer, and you need to choose one. Just play along with me. I know it's not ideal. How many would replace your top performer with the description A? Okay. And how many would replace your top performer with description B? Right, about, I'd say 90% of you picked description B. Now here's the thing, they are written intentionally very differently. Description A is called communal language, the language of we, collaboration. Description B is described with agentic language, the language of I am an independent agent taking charge. Here's the rub, researchers at Rice University went through 400 letters of recommendation and found that the more communal language that was used for the position of medical director, which I consider a life and death decision maker, the more communal language that was used, the less likely the woman was or the person was to be put forward for candidacy. Now guess which language is more often used to describe women? Communal language. So even the sponsors of women who don't understand those automatic judgments will accidentally disadvantage the candidates they're trying to advocate for. This is the kind of words that researchers would use. At the Clayman Institute, we also cull through performance reviews to see the kinds of language that's used. We find that it's not only agentic versus communal language, but it's also something else. This is the resume study, or the interview study you heard earlier. The women who toot their own horn kind of advocate for themselves are seen as more competent, but they're seen as unlikable. And because they're seen as unlikable, the only candidate in that study are the one, the highly assertive man. In fact, the very competent woman gets fewer offers than the very modest male in the study. This is called the likability penalty that women face. For women, likability and competence are negatively correlated, which means the more competent we occur as, the less likable. The more likable we occur as, the less competent. Men, for men, it's positively correlated. The more powerful, the more likable. So it's a very narrow double bind we put women under. Our solutions, you need to break the tendency to rely on stereotypes when making decisions, especially around people. Think of the blind audition. You can't undo bias, but you can block it from affecting the decisions you make about people. I'm going to give two very short answers, and I hope throughout the day you'll share with each other more. One, when you're making decisions about people, if you first identify the criteria you're using, you're less likely to rely on stereotypes. You know that police chief study? When they first asked the next round of people, round four, what are the criteria for police chief? And they said education they were more likely to pick the woman as the top candidate. So if you simply agree 
to bring a little process to your decision making and agree to criteria in advance, it'll act a little bit like that blind screen and prevent you from relying on stereotypes. The second thing, even if it's hard for women to tell you, I'm a leader in this, I'm an excellent at this, without evoking the likability penalty, you can do that on her behalf. We also discovered that women professors who are new get lower ratings because, as you can imagine, the students are saying, oh, are they really good? Are they really an expert? So a professor did an experiment. In one classroom, he introduced his woman TA as simply her name. In another condition, he introduced her through all her expertise, published this, leads this lab, does all these things. In the condition where he introduced her powerfully based on her expertise, she got higher ratings. So even if you don't know it, you can be a one-person PR person for the women and people of color around you. You can vouch for their competence so that others are doubting it. You're the one saying that's who they are. So the one action we can all take, get to know someone here today, powerfully introduce them to another, ensure they're seen for their full expertise. And remember, you cannot eliminate bias, but you can definitely block it so that we can ensure that we're lifting women up and bringing them all the way to the top. Thank you. Girls, we run this mother. Yeah. I feel like dancing all of a sudden. Okay, thank you, Lori. <laughs> you guys can dance too if it makes you feel a little more energetic. And my name is Mike Sagoon, and we are from Kaiser Permanente's Educational Theater. Here to do a five-minute recess with you all, so we need all of you to please stand up and push those chairs in. Now, I know a lot of you have on some very fancy shirts, so please move as safely as possible. Great, so a five-minute recess is just a quick way to get your body moving and your blood pumping. So, you're going to follow along with us. If we go this way, Here we go. March it out, here we go. You do as much as you can. It also helps if you smile. You look good, by the way. We're gonna step touch, here we go. Come back next. Disrespect us, no. Hi. 
Get in there, it feels good. Give yourself some love. Thank you so much. We are Kaiser Permanente, hoping that you guys have a great day and thrive. Are you awake? Do you feel refreshed? <laughs> what a talented bunch of women. Who knew you could rock it out? That was fun. All right. Uh, everybody wiping off the sweat, settling down a little bit. All right, you magical dancers, you. Before we move on to our next topic, I want to point out that our graphic recorder, Julie Gisiki, uh, is providing a visual interpretation of today's uh, proceedings, and we will have her drawings out in the lobby later today, so be sure to check them out. We have a fabulous uh, panel discussion coming up for you, another one. To lead our next discussion on leadership and visibility, please welcome NBC senior White House correspondent reporting for NBC Nightly News. News, the Today Show, and MSNBC programs, Chris Jansing. And joining Chris on stage is the former head of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and vice, Pre vice president of environment policy and social initiatives at Apple, Lisa Jackson. Also, please welcome back to the stage our co-host and the mayor of Oakland, Libby Schaaf. And a very special guest from nearby Hayward, please welcome the 43rd Treasurer of the United States, Rosie Rios. And Chris Jansing, the stage is yours. Well, thank you all. And thank you all for coming. I'm so excited to be with these women. Obviously, they're incredibly accomplished. And we found out backstage, they've all worked together <laughs> at one time or another. It's like six degrees of separation. But in addition to that, they're all women in fields, frankly, that a lot of women have found difficult to break through in. Science and technology, in government, and in any level of finance, imagine being the U.S. treasurer and your opening line at a cocktail party is, oh yeah, that is my name on the $5 bill and the $10 bill and the $20. Do your kids use that? Do they say, oh, that's my mom's signature on well, money? It's their name too. So absolutely, they use it all the time. <laughs> so we like that. You know, we want to talk today a little bit about what it means to be in a leadership role, what that visibility means both the pros and the cons. So I wanted to start with kind of a big picture question. I'm going to go through all three of you really quickly. How has being a woman helped your career and hurt it? Rosie? That's a great question. So interestingly enough, this, this position of the Treasury of the United States, it's been a woman since 1949. And at the time, uh, President Truman thought it would be very symbolic to have a woman's name alongside the Secretary of the Treasury on all our nation's money. So we value what we see, we go with what we know every day, and so it was a very symbolic gesture. So, so that's been great. On the other hand, you know, this position has uh, evolved over time, and, and before I took the job, it was actually very ceremonial, and so I kind of felt this need to redeem it, perhaps validate it with something more substantive, especially in one of the most consequential times of our economic history. Mayor? You know, I'll, I think of two things where it's helped me. One, this sounds funny, but I feel like sometimes I'm underestimated in negotiations, and that actually is my advantage. Uh, 
sometimes with even professional sports teams. <laughs> um, and then second, you know, when, when, I, when I face the TV cameras and say something like, I came to run a police department, not a frat house, people feel how serious I am. They know that that statement comes from a life experience, a lived experience that is very real. So I think it can actually add to your credibility and um, that platform of knowledge that you speak from uh, when you are connected with your passion, your values. Um, as far as hurting me, I just want to be really real here because, you know, we're all girlfriends, right? Breastfeeding. <laughs> Breastfeeding as an executive. To walk into the boardroom and realize that you have two giant wet spots on your blouse. Um, I think that has been one of the hardest things about being a woman in the workforce. Yeah, at the White House, one of the women there, and there was a t when I first went to the White House, uh, President Obama was joking that there was something in the water because there were so many women, frankly, who were pregnant. But uh, between themselves, they would joke that their accessories were a statement necklace and a breast pump. So <laughs> that, they, they actually have a great setup at the White House, and I'm sure later on today, Valerie Jarrett will have uh, some things to say about that. And Lisa, I should give props to Apple because you were your company was just named one of the best uh, top five at recruiting and retaining high quality talent. But for you, what's it meant to be a woman, good and bad? Yeah, you know, I, I think it, it's that you bring yourself to everything you do from academics to workplace. That's the good of it. I'm a uh, chemical engineer by training. And so uh, I always felt I had a different perspective in a class full of, you know, back when I went to school, mostly uh, guys who were studying alongside me. So it's a huge advantage. Uh, it can also be that classic disadvantage because your perspective is different and because you don't fit the mold in some people's minds, you have to fight that much harder to be heard, to be really heard, to be understood and not just sort of, uh, you know, that classic moment where you say something and then someone who happens to be male says it a few day, minutes later and people remember it when they say it. So I think, I think that's very real, but I think it's, the same, it's two sides of the same coin. I have to say that when I read that she had a master's degree in chemical engineering, my, I immediately got tight in my stomach. And, and I do think to myself, is that because that is just really not my skill set and we're all born with different skills in mind, I hope have been communication? Or is it because there is something intrinsic in me that says, well, that's something that women aren't good at and don't do. And are we still there with that? How's STEM coming along for for example. You know, STEM is coming, but it's a pipeline issue. I mean, it, for some time now, chemical engineering, for example, has had a lot more females in it studying at the undergraduate level. So we're perfectly capable, no surprises, of doing the work. Um, I think what is a, a bit disconcerting is that, recruit, that retention part. Because we are so often, I like to use Mr. Spock and Deanna Troy, we're so often taught that being a scientist means we have to leave all this emotion back so we can make good decisions. And actually what I believe, uh, and Anne-Marie Slaughter was on earlier and she and I have talked about this, but what I believe is that we should change the profession of engineering or science to incorporate a much more holistic, sort of humanistic version of what that means. So I'm a chemical engineer who doesn't work on making chemicals, I work on cleaning up hazardous waste sites. I mean, that for me was how I actuate my femininity. I want to look at some statistics because I think they're very telling and they're interesting, particularly in the context of our last speaker. And we were behind uh, this wall and we were watching and it is a little bit 
disconcerting to see two people of equal talent and equal resumes both uh, going for the same job and the way that they're perceived so differently. So right now, and, and this is the good news, women earn almost 60% of all undergrad and master's degrees in this country, nearly half of law degrees, although I think we have at least one person here who might describe herself as a recovering lawyer. I have a lot of people <laughs> who are in that category. Um, they hold almost 52% of professional level jobs. So all great, right? Here's the bad news. Women are less than 15% of executive officers, about 8% of top wage earners, and less than 5% of Fortune 500 CEOs. They hold about just 17% of Fortune 500 board seats. Why aren't women doing better? Yeah, I, I think those statistics are interesting, but it's not just the numbers today, it's the trends that I'm more concerned about. So if you think about kind of the, you know, God forbid, the three pillars of influence, sex, money, power, let's talk about the, the money and power piece for a second. Women started retreating from their, their participation as members of Congress in 2010. The numbers started going down. For Fortune 500 CEOs, it went from 24 last year to 21 this year, and it's going to be 20 when we lose Ursula Burns. If you think about women on corporate boards, it was about 16.2% last year, about 16.4% this year. So it's the trends we should be thinking about, and I don't think we're going in the right direction. It's very, very serious. I can talk a little bit about politics, because being in Washington, as I am, and being on the campaign trail now, one of the most fascinating and for me, depressing conversations that I ever had was with someone whose job it was to recruit women to run for Congress and to run for other, uh, for mayor, for city council. And what she told me is that women and men often approach these jobs very, very differently. That women go in because they really want to change the world. And I don't want to say that there aren't men who don't go in for the right reasons, but I'm just saying as a general matter. She said they, they go in because they really want to be somebody who can be a positive force for change. Men go in maybe for that reason as well, but it's power. So they go in for power. And so when women, especially women who they're recruiting for uh, the House and the Senate, think about what can they get done and they look at how polarized Washington is and they know what they're going to have to give up, right? We all know what price we pay for doing high-level jobs and they just don't see the cost. They do a cost-benefit analysis and they don't see what could possibly be gained. So what, maybe 20 years I'll be in a position to be a committee chair and have some influence? I don't think so. I don't know, Mayor, as somebody who has run for different offices, been on city council, what do you see as, and I think, you know, it's applicable to a lot of places in the world. You do that cost-benefit analysis, right? And maybe in the end, you wonder if they think it's not equal, I'm still going to have to do more in the other part of my life. I'm going to have to do what Ginger Rogers did compared to Fred Astaire. She did all the same moves, but backwards and in high heels, <laughs> right, as I'm wearing my high heels. So what's it going to take? Well, you know, um, I'm a big fan of Emerge California and Emerge America. <laughs> 
which is an organization that is helping Democratic women seek their first office. A lot of organizations are trying to get people into Congress, but you're not going to have qualified women to run for Congress unless they started at the school board or the library commission or something else. And uh, so that's part of it. Again, a pipeline issue. Secondly, their studies really demonstrate that there are two big reasons that women choose to not run. First, uh, they feel too many obligations outside of their work, their family, the home. Uh, and so again, by liberating men and, and the rest of the society to share in those uh, duties is going to really help all of us. And then secondly, women tend to need to be asked. And so that's something that we all can do. Encourage women to see themselves as those leaders. I agree with you, but why is that? Why do we wait and I used to, honestly, I used to brag about the fact that I never went for a job, that people always came to me as I made my way up the ladder from a small newspaper to radio station to television, even coming to NBC, Andy Lack, who was then and is now back as the president of NBC News, happened to see me. I was happy as could be working away in Albany, New York, and he was on vacation and saw me and, and made a phone call. Why? I don't think that's as true maybe as it used to be when I, and I've been around a long time, I've been in the business for 40 years, but why is that? Why do we wait to be asked? Mm. I, I, I think that we were trained, maybe not by our caregivers, but by society at large that women should, should be asked. And I do think that has changed a lot from um, the time when I was sort of you know, going through and being the only woman in class or being the only woman uh, uh, in, in engineering or whatever. I, I so think let me put you on the spot. I want to put all of you on the spot. Yeah. So for all the women out there who want to know how to ask, how should they come to you, all of you in positions of power, in positions of leadership? What's the ask? I, wa I want to switch the script a little bit on Okay. That because I kind of, I'm tired of us blaming ourselves, like you're not in politics because you weren't brave enough to do it yourself. It's, it's really important in all areas of disparate impact, gender is one, race is another, uh, that we stop blaming the individual actor and look at the systems. And particularly us in government, we often have been put in place to um, maintain the status quo. And so there are systems and practices in place that we have to disrupt if we want different outcomes. Um, and, uh, and I'll give you one little example in politics. Uh, in Oakland, we changed from having a traditional election system to something called ranked choice voting. And it allows a voter, instead of just picking one candidate, to rank in order of preference up to three candidates. And one of the things that it often results in, I'm not saying it's perfect, it's certainly not perfect, but it often results in actually more um, polite campaigning because you don't want to offend the supporters of your competitor because you want them to put you second. That's been so true in this campaign season, yes. hasn't it? The yes. politeness factor. <laughs> oh, yeah. Woo! <laughs> 
Hello. Okay, can I so follow? that's a system change. Yeah. Changing the way that we do elections actually led to actually more civil campaigning. That's an example. But I do think it starts individually, and I completely agree with everything you just said. And I think disruption is a big piece of this, but, but I call myself a constructive disruptor. And here's what that means. You have to be very, very strategic. You absolutely have to do your homework. You shouldn't ask for something and go in and bang on the table because you deserve it because you're a woman, et cetera, et cetera. You have to absolutely do the research that you need to do to make your proposal. When I took this job, I wasn't going to take this job because I was a woman or because I had a history of having a Latina. I made a proposal on what the portfolio was going to be for this job, and I wasn't going to take it unless it was going to be substantive enough for me to be able to use my finance background as part of Treasury. So that was one piece. But it is kind of systemic. You know, when I came into Treasury, that building was built in the year 1800, and it did not have a nursing lounge. So, yeah, I, I wasn't nursing, but I took it on to my, uh, from by myself because I thought it was important for any woman who was coming back into the workplace to feel like they were valued. They actually have a place to go, and they actually can do their job. But it's more than that. So as you probably know, I've been working on this little project for the last eight years to put a woman in our currency. The <laughs> And may I say, working on it very successfully. Thank you. But here's the irony of that. This is the best example, I think, of what you're talking about. So I had the Bureau of Engraving and Printing Director who reported to me, his deputy and his deputy. Between the three of them, they'd worked at the BEP for almost 100 years. So this project came in my mind in December of 2008. As you look and see how our country institutionalizes our history on every denomination of coin and currency, a symbolic person on the front, a very important edifice or monument on the back. So it was kind of strange to me that 50% of the population was not honored as part of our history. But I asked these three people individually why this conversation hasn't happened before. In 120 years, 120 years, we haven't had a woman in our currency. Meanwhile, there's, you know, over 40 countries, pretty much just us and Saudi Arabia, not technically, but close enough. So the answer that I got from each of these people individually was the same. No one's ever brought it up. So what else aren't we bringing up, right? Hashtag bring it up. What else aren't we bringing up? <laughs> Everybody take out. I know you have your phones. Hashtag bring it up. No, that's fantastic. And, and I guess in that context, um, is there something that you've learned along the way that when younger women come to you or women who are returning to the workforce, which I see a lot, people come to me and they might be in their 30s or even early 40s and they're very nervous because they see a lot of young women in journalism and a lot of young women in television. They ask me, what can I do? So do you feel that response, that part of your leadership responsibility is to give that opportunity to young women. And, and what do you tell them, Lisa? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely believe that part of our job is to ensure diversity. And for us, diversity, you know, at Apple, but for me personally is, is you know, more than gender um, or uh, gender identification. But, but here at this forum, let's just talk about that. And I say a couple of things. Mentoring, incredibly important. Finding sponsors, people who for whatever set of reasons are there to help you succeed. But do not confuse mentoring with charity work. I do a lot of charity work, or we give a lot to charity, but you have to make that value proposition for me. Because there are so many people that are, are looking to find their right place. It's really important to know what it is you want. So you asked about why don't we ask. I think we just need to perfect asking. We need to perfect being able to say, here is what I bring to the table. And I will never, ever discount the importance of looking someone in the eye and saying, I really want to work for you. And here's what I can do 
to help you be successful while I'm also becoming successful. That we just need to, you know, everyone, male, female needs to do it, but that's really Some important. years ago, before she wrote her best-selling book, I did a panel like this with Sheryl Sandberg, and there were literally gasps in the audience when she suggested that she did not like it when someone would come to her and say, will you mentor me? That she felt that that was somehow less than, I don't want to put words in her mouth, if you've read her book, you know uh, what she's talked about, but do you mentor or what do you consider with this visible role, both of you in government, very different types because you had to run for office, do you consider yourself A, a role model, B, do you feel a responsibility in that leadership position to help other women achieve that? You know, it was a great moment when a little boy looked at me and he said, can, can boys be mayors too? And I'm like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> I'm going to give that applause. <laughs> Um, I'm like, yes, sweetheart, they can. Um, so for me, uh, you know, and, and it, this ties into answering your last question, like my advice to young people, uh, one is just to be very clear, very clear about your passion, your mission, and what your values are. Because um, at least in my business, you've got to have a very thick skin, very thick skin. And so you've got to always have that place to come back to. But the other thing, and, and this is kind of a twist on mentoring, is pay attention to relationships. And, and that can be, I mean, it's, it's no accident that Rosie, like, we're all up here together. Isn't that ironic? Because we all work together. Uh, and, and so it's not necessarily only relationships of mentoring, but just having a network because the more people you know who feel good about you, then maybe you don't have to be asking because they'll be asking you. Um, and that valuing of relationships and not just pure naked ambition is something that I think young women need to, to hear. I agree. Let me, let me be a little bit more specific. I completely agree with everything they both said. So, and I agree with Sheryl Sandberg. I think, especially for women who are approached or men who are approached, sometimes the word mentorship, can you mentor me? Can you sponsor me? You know, some people take it the wrong way. It is a very personal relationship. And, and to be asked to take on something like that sometimes is overwhelming for a lot of people. I consider it finding your champions. Let me be specific about that, what a champion is. A champion can be something on a very, very specific project. So the way I've thought about kind of project management, it's, it's, it's these, this approach that I've used, whether, you know, I was managing director of investments for a firm, and, and the due diligence process was very, very specific on how you decided whether or not you're going to invest in a particular project. So it was, you know, existing conditions, precedent, case study, analysis, recommendation, implementation. If you think about that in kind of a more simplistic way about how you propose something, a very, very particular project, this is what I use when I propose a currency redesign, this is what I use for any type of project, it's kind of this recognition, connection, inspiration. It's taking on the ability to be able to do your homework and figure out what it is you're asking for, for that champion, to connect the dots in terms of how it affects the organization or the people around you, and the inspiration piece is what it means in terms of what you're leaving behind, not just for the next generation, but for something sustainable that goes beyond you. So if you think about how to propose something, whatever it is, a program, a project, an initiative, and you go to someone, male or female, and you're asking for, their, for their to be, them to be a champion of what you're proposing, as long as you follow that path of doing your due diligence the same way you would on a particular project, it has never failed me, not once, not ever. And it kind of takes the whole kind of personal stigma off of what it means, especially when you approach 
a male colleague or a male boss. It's very, very specific. And let me tell you, it's worked 100% of the time in my entire career. Great advice. So we're, we're coming down to our final minutes really quickly. What time do you get up in the morning? <laughs> 5 a.m. 6.30. Between 5, 5.30. How many hours a week do you work? And when I say work, I mean at your job, not with the kids, not how much do you work? Oh my God. Nonstop. It's 24 seven. I would say it's always on my mind, but weekends, do you feel nervous right daughter, now because you don't have, I, don't have my black, I asked Lisa, I said, can we take anything on stage? Are we taking anything with us? We're taking our blackberries. No, no. no. So the answer, but it should be, you I, know, I, she works for the government cause it's still a blackberry, yeah. but, but I'm just saying, but when I am with my kids and I have two kids, when I'm with my kids, it's 100% with them. Absolutely. The time that I spend with them, usually on weekends, it's 100% with them. Absolutely. How many hours a week do you work? Yeah, you don't want to know. Um, and I, I also well, like, as a mayor, you can never turn your phone off. Oh, no, you cannot. In fact, I mean, I, my friends, sometimes I will rent a house or something. W one time I went camping someplace where there was no cell phone service. I will never do that again. <laughs> uh, it was one of those weekends where I literally had to pack up the whole family and drive straight home uh, because something bad happened that required my attention. But, you know, I, I too, I have, my kids are eight and 10 years old. And so um, trying to figure out that that time uh, with them obviously is a challenge and we do talk about it as a family uh the fact that protesters show up at at our house is something we've had to talk about <laughs> as a family um but you know they also you, you know I, I had a moment where i was like kind of crying on the pillow saying to my husband i'm such a bad mother and he's like you are a great mother you are setting an example about having a passion doing work that benefits your community that is great parenting. So working at Apple and we all know it's a great place to work. So 40 hours, right? And then you take a nice <laughs> lunch break and yeah, but I'm in a different place than these women. I mean, I remember those days. It really is true. You're 24 seven when you work at um, the, the high levels of government, executive leadership that, that they are. Um, I try to find the equivalent of one full weekend day where I am not working. My husband would probably say, hmm, but, <laughs> but I read a lot on device. You know, I, I don't feel, and I honestly believe you're working 24-7 if you're a caregiver as well, but I just believe that one of the things I say to women all the time is if the guilt is there, get rid of it. That guilt is coming from you. You're putting it on yourself. It's one more bag on your back. Take it off, put it down and understand, damn it, you're doing the best you can. And if you're doing the best you can, nobody can ask any more than that for you. So I do, you know, what I love. Uh, and I've been fortunate enough to leave government running the EPA, where, by the way, we had something called the SHEPA because we had to support each other. Um, and now I get to do that at Apple, and I love it. And if I didn't love it, I wouldn't do it, and I'm blessed to be able to say that because a lot of women can't. They just have to work. Because so what do you do for yourself? Um, I'm, I'm addicted to the New York Times crosswords and hiking in San Francisco. Like you can hike here and I just like when I'm really stressed, I need to go out for a walk, put on Beyonce. <laughs> we like that. What do you do for yourself, Mayor? Uh, I love Game of Thrones. Uh, and I belong to a book club. I, I, I am a geeky reader. I, I like science fiction. And how many hours a night do you sleep? 
Um, you know, it depends, but you know, six. And um, I, while they'll still have me, I love to snuggle in bed with my kids. Because yes. um, that'll change. <laughs> How about you? <laughs> Trust me, I was just with my two nieces, 15 and 16, and I got them a tour of the White House with my sister, and I was working, and, she, and they came out. And, and they were like, oh, yeah, it was cool. She goes, they were going crazy inside, but they don't want to show you. That's be uncool for them to show you that they had a great time. What do you do for yourself? You know, it really is spending time with my kids. I, mean, I call this kind of, you know, the whole having it all notion just doesn't exist. It doesn't. And anyone who tells you that, they're lying. There's no way you can do it. And I, I think of it this way, the rosy pie of life. When I was here in San Francisco and I was working here, my pie had many, many slices, and it was a beautiful pie. And I had, you know, my sisters, my mom, my girlfriends, my job. I was working out. I moved to D.C., and there's only two slices in my pie, and that's my choice. It's my job, and it's my kids, and nothing else exists. And my social life is my kids. So, you know, I'll go away for the weekend. She's on a traveling basketball team, and I'll spend the weekend with her traveling basketball team. Or, you know, my son played tennis. We'll do the same thing. That is my social life, and I choose that. And for now, that's what's worked for me for the last eight years. Now, the next life, who knows? I'll probably get some slices back. Maybe I'll start working out again, whatever it is. But everyone needs to create their own pie with their own slices for their own moment in time. Sovereignty is the new word. Absolutely. We are, out of t we are completely out of time, but they're so great. And because I asked them to have an answer for this, I want to leave you with their answer to this one question, which is, what do you wish, Lisa, someone had told you when you were 20? What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Um, I answered this once for O Magazine, and I said two things. Get all the education you want while you're young because life gets in the way. So if you're thinking of that degree, get it now. Somebody told me that, and that's how I got my master's. I know I wouldn't have gone back. And the other was to steal all my mother's jewelry because it always comes back in stock. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Libby? <laughs> Uh, I wish someone had told me when I was 20, like, he's not the one for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, don't, so don't be all upset about it because someone much better is coming along. Um, uh, but I, I do wish, again, you know, don't forget relationships. They are what gets you through. Again, it doesn't have to be a mentoring relationship, yeah. just relationships. Yeah. Choose people. your friends well. People, mm. people. Yeah. And just... And just you know, keep plugged in to that passion, that passion and your values. They will get you through every day. Rosie? Uh, you've earned your seat at the table, whatever table that is. I, my pet peeve is when I see women walk into a meeting and they take a seat around the perimeter against the wall and start taking notes versus going at the table and, and participating in the conversation. So it's my, something my mom told me very early on. Whatever table it is, sit at the table, get up front close, Raise your hand if you have a question, or if someone asks you a question, be prepared with an answer. Always, always, always. And I always tell people that cut yourself a break. You know, we all need to just let ourselves understand that none of us is perfect. And, and I wish I'd learned this younger, say thank you more. And sometimes the things that you think are your biggest failures end up later in life being the best opportunities that you ever had. And, and you just need to know that in the moment. Lisa Jackson, Libby Schaff, Rosie Rios. What a fantastic panel. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome someone who needs no introduction, the former mayor of the city and county of San Francisco, the Honorable Willie Brown.
morning to each and every one of you. I am delighted that Mayor Lee and Mayor Shaft invited me to come participate in the Bay Area Women's Summit. It was a concept that we started many years ago in San Francisco, and for five consecutive years we did the women's, the mayor's women's summit, and we did it right here. And we did it with the same emphasis that these two mayors are doing it for the San Francisco Bay Area. I understand that there are at least two of my chairpeople here, Linda Creighton and Carolito, were chairpersons on more than one occasion for the event. And it was frankly spectacular because it did appropriately address the needs of women in what basically had been for a long time an attitude by government and by businesses and by operations that did not pay attention to the differences between what was done with women and on behalf of women and other people. And so it was just fabulous to have that occur and to have these two mayors come forward now addressing the needs and the issues, and to have all of you who are attended herein, I know you're going to enjoy it. Because when they extended the opportunity to me, they called to my attention a person who had for a long time participated and was a driver in organizing immigrant women, extending care for children, and then suddenly discovering that in the process of people being nannies, maids, and what have you, there was a desire to have their assistance carried over to people of a different age, older people. And to that end, after organizing domestic workers in the state of New York, she focused her attention on merging the generations on the caregiving side, which is a whole new concept uh, for this nation. She organized and caused New York to say that there shall be a domestic workers' bill of rights, a concept that's also in the state of California and a concept that's about to happen in the state of Illinois, but simultaneously earning the right to do what you do when somebody says you're a MacArthur Fellow, and they said that about her, or earning the right to be included in Time Magazine's 100 Greatest People or 500 Greatest People or whatever the number might be. She is fitted in every one of those categories. She writes, speaks, and organizes in a manner in which the energy put into it cannot be compared in any other source. I should share with you a video that Michael has done before I bring her on. Michael, can we do the video? You are a wonderful, joyful, loving person. You are like a father figure to me. You are. Gentle. We care about each other, and we take an interest in each other. 
Before I came to this country, I was taking care of my grandmother. So I felt that I can do the job. I took it for granted that, you know, if I wanted to do anything, I would get up, go out shopping, visiting people. Unfortunately, that's no longer the case. I noticed you were changing years ago. After I been able to get you to go outside, I got the opportunity then to go places with you. When I got home from rehab after being away for over three months, the first thing I saw were eight balloons that you had put up around my door, welcoming me back. And I knew I was truly home. I am totally honored uh, to be a caregiver for you. It is a great privilege and a joy for me. There are so many things that I still can't do that I depend on you to help me. And the help is given so freely and with so much love. And that makes me feel a lot better and still independent. But as I said, independent with benefits. We are not only just caregivers. You are a nutritionist. You are a nurse. You're the doctor. You are my mother, Julie Davis, and you are loved by a whole lot of people. You're Dr. Morris Steiner. You are my patient. You're a pediatrician, war veteran. You have taught me things that I know would take me through the rest of my life. You are my community, but you're even more than that. You are my friends. And as much as you've done for me, there's nothing that I wouldn't do for you also. delighted to present to you the subject matter of that video and the subject matter of my admiration for her work, Anjin Poo. Thank you so much, Mayor Brown. What an incredible honor to be introduced by you. I'm so humbled. And also a huge thanks to Mayors Lee and Schaff for your incredible leadership. I also want to just give a huge amount of appreciation to the staff whose work behind the scenes is making all of this possible. Can we give them a huge round of applause? I am so thrilled to be here 
for so many reasons. And I'm going to pick up where the great Anne-Marie Slaughter left off this morning. Um, and I'm going to talk to you about the work that makes all other work possible. The work of caring for the most precious elements of our lives. Our kids, our homes, our aging loved ones, or in the case of people with disabilities, our independence. All of us are touched in one form or another by this work. In fact, if you're providing care for a family member or a loved one or a friend at the moment, can you just raise your hand? Right, hundreds of us. Thank you for all the work that you do to care for family members because that work so often goes unrecognized and unappreciated. Now, there's also a large and growing part of our workforce who does care and domestic work as a profession. Approximately two million women work as nannies, house cleaners, home care workers, and attendants in the great state of California. Some of them are here in the room, the member leaders of Mujeres Unidas y Activas and the California Domestic Workers Coalition. Are you here? Huge shout out. It is their job to make sure our homes are peaceful and cared for, that our aging loved ones can live well and in community, and that people with disabilities can live independent and full lives. What could be more important? And yet, it is some of the most undervalued, vulnerable work in our economy today. We often compare it to the Wild West because you never quite know what you're going to get. You might find a wonderful employer who you stay with for years and even generations at times. We've seen that. Or you might find the whole other end of the spectrum and we've found cases of human trafficking and modern day slavery and even sexual assault and everything in between. There's not much mediating that relationship. In fact, you could walk into any apartment building or neighborhood in the Bay Area and not know which homes are also workplaces. There's no registry, no standards or guidelines. And even as an employer, if you want to do the right thing, it's not always clear what that is. In fact, there's a very long history of exclusion of this workforce from some of the most basic protections that all of us take for granted. In the 1930s, when the New Deal was being negotiated in Congress, Southern members of Congress refused to support the passage of labor laws if they included farm workers and domestic workers, who were, of, co of course, mostly black workers at the time. So the Fair Labor Standards Act, which created the minimum wage, and the National Labor Relations Act, which provided the framework for the right to form a union, both passed with exclusions of domestic workers. Those racial exclusions are compounded by the fact that the work itself is not really even seen as real work. It's associated with women's work, taken for granted or expected, and not associated with any real economic value. So what that's meant for workers like Edith Fernandez, who is a caregiver here in California, 
is 12, 14, sometimes round-the-clock work without rest, including bathing, cleaning, grocery shopping, administering medicine, physical therapy, cooking. It is hard work, really hard work. And she takes home for this work between 8 and $9 per hour. And those wages have to stretch. She has to support her children and her family in the Philippines and pay her own food and rent. It's actually not hard to see how we wind up in a situation where a third of the workforce has to rely on public assistance just to survive. How could it be that such a hard-working workforce that we're counting on to care for our families can't earn enough to care for their own. And it turns out that this workforce is on the front lines of tremendous change in our economy, in our culture, and in our demographics. We already saw how many of us are caring for family members. Most caregiving work is still done by family members, but family caregivers are overstretched and undersupported Today, more than 60% of women are working outside the home, juggling full-time work with more than 20 hours on average of work caring for family members on top of that. And they are increasingly relying upon nannies, house cleaners, and care workers to support their family care needs. On top of that, this year, the baby boom generation is starting to turn 70 at a rate of a person every eight seconds, four million people per year. And because of advances in healthcare and technology, people in my grandmother's demographic of 85 and older are the fastest growing age demographic in the nation. And then we have millennials who are turning 35 and having children, and relying upon childcare providers and nannies to support their childcare needs. These jobs, predominantly held by women, in fact, more than 90% women, often women of color and immigrant women, these jobs can't be outsourced. And at least for the moment, most people prefer humans to care for their loved ones over robots. That may change. As a result, home care is the fastest growing occupation in our entire workforce. And by 2030, care jobs will be the largest single occupation in our entire economy. So we've got to transform these jobs into good jobs that you can take pride in and support your family on, and one generation can do better than the next. This workforce deserves nothing less and our families deserve to have a strong, sustainable, professional workforce to support our growing family care needs. Every care job has to be a good job. And fortunately, this workforce is organizing to ensure that that is the case. And we're winning More than 20 years ago, in 
Right here in the Bay Area and in cities like it around the country, domestic workers started organizing, started coming together in church basements and immigrant community centers around the country, sharing their stories, supporting one another, raising funds through selling food and um, organizing raffles. Today we have 55 local affiliate organizations in 35, 38 cities around the country, and their courage and hard work has created a moment in history. They are making history. Their courage to step out of the shadows and into their power has led to major policy victories, including the passage of the Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights at the state and municipal level, Yes. Illinois just became the seventh state to pass a domestic workers' bill of rights, and we're fighting in many other states and municipalities on this map. And thanks to the leadership of our great President Obama and the Secretary of Labor, Tom Perez, we brought this October, last October, two million home care workers under minimum wage and overtime protections out after 80 years of exclusion. A huge victory for working women. And right here in the great state of California, the California Domestic Workers Coalition won a Bill of Rights in 2013, but it has a sunset. It is due to sunset, and therefore, this year, and therefore, in real time, right now, as we speak, there's a hearing tomorrow, in fact, our California coalition is working around the clock to ensure the California legislature makes our bill permanent law. And we need your support. Can we count on your support? None of our victories would have been possible without real champions for the every woman, in the words of the organizers of the summit. We have lots of champions for the every woman here in this great state of California. Women like Julie Sue, Nancy McFadden, Senator Connie Leva, Serena Khan, Juana Flores, Sylvia Lopez. They truly understand what it means for every woman to win. They understand that when our solutions begin from women working in the darkest parts of our economy, that it actually helps to ensure that our solutions include every woman so that every woman can achieve her fullest potential. Domestic workers actually provide a wonderful example for how investing in women, particularly women of color and low-income women, provides unique insight into the solutions we need for the future, putting us all ahead of the curve. There's a famous saying that the future is now, it's just unevenly distributed. I sometimes refer to domestic workers as the ultimate futurists because they were living the gig economy working conditions long before there ever was a gig economy. Unpredictable work hours, lack of training, standards, lack of access to benefits or job security. These conditions used to be considered shadow working conditions at the margins of our economy Today, these conditions define more and more work in the American economy. 
between 30 and 50% of our workforce will be doing non-traditional work in the next decade, part-time, temporary, self-employed, independent contractor work. And what that means is that the framework we have for work, workers' rights, labor standards, collective bargaining, our safety net, our social contract, holds and protects less and less of our workforce. So we started talking to workers in the gig economy about their experiences, some of whom were domestic workers. And from those conversations, we've developed a set of principles to support good work in the care and throughout the online economy. Together with a dozen tech companies, we launched these principles as a framework to help companies think about how their platforms can be great places for the people who work there. This is one example of how the experiences of women like Edith can help inform the way forward and strengthen the conversation about the future of work and care in our economy for everyone. Looking at the world through the eyes of domestic workers, we often see the problems that we face, the challenges that we face in a new light, in new ways that allow for us to see solutions that truly do support every woman. But we have a lot more work to do, not just in terms of making these jobs good jobs. There are major, major changes underway in the way we live, work, and care in this country, changes that affect every woman. Longevity, the digital revolution, changes in our family, in our racial demographics. This moment of change is actually a moment for bold solutions that both meet the current moment and look ahead to what's coming. As we make progress on really critical pieces of policy like raising the minimum wage and establishing paid leave, we also must challenge ourselves to keep thinking bigger and bolder. The seeds for the new social contract are being planted as we speak. Big ideas like new, uh, big ideas and new social, new solutions to our new reality are emerging every day. Ideas like universal basic income or portable benefits. We need to ensure that these ideas protect and support every woman. And we also need to elevate big ideas that can truly change the game for women and families, like universal childcare and elder care. How about that? <laughs> women must drive the conversation about the future of our social contract, especially the lowest income women among us who, as it turns out, are the least who, as it turns out, while they may be the least visible, are already changing the world around us. We need all of our voices. I was so happy to see that a big theme of today's summit is really about taking pledges to take action. So along with that theme, I want to share a few opportunities to take action. First, call the governor and tell him you support the California Domestic Workers Bill of Rights becoming permanent law. Second, 
Women's organizations around the country are working together to make sure that every woman is engaged in our democracy this election cycle and helping to set the agenda for the new social contract. We're holding 500,000 kitchen table conversations with women about their experiences in the economy and getting feedback on what are the policies that would we would really need to win in order to create economic opportunity for every woman. This effort is called We Won't Wait, and you can sign up to host a kitchen table conversation. Third, if you're employing a domestic worker or caregiver in your home, we hope you'll take the Fair Care Pledge, pledging fairness in your care employment relationships. Together with the Employer Association Hand in Hand and Care.com, a wonderful company, we created the pledge to raise awareness and support healthy, fair employment in our homes. Uh, almost 200,000 people have already taken the pledge. We hope you'll join them. And finally, the Domestic Workers Alliance, Caring Across Generations, New America, with Anne-Marie Slaughter and Care.com, we have launched a new coalition called Who Cares to bring attention to the incredible economic and social value of care, the, true, the value of care, both paid and unpaid, the, care, the work that makes all other work possible in our economy. Creating a care economy that allows every woman and every family to thrive is one of the single most important tasks of our time. And it begins with each of us taking care of ourselves, taking care of our caregivers, and getting involved in a movement to truly value care and the dignity of all work. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ai-Jan. That was wonderful. Look, are you enjoying the morning so far? It was pretty good, right? We have a lot more in store. Let me share with you what's going to happen next. In just a few moments, we're going to break for lunch. Uh, and as you exit the hallway, turn to your right, and you'll find a selection of three different lunch options. We urge you to take your lunch to the breakout room of your choice, where you can get to know some of the other attendees, share your thoughts about what you heard this morning, and prepare for our breakout session programming. Uh, those panels and discussions will begin at 12.20 p.m. This part of the summit is about hearing your voices, and at the end of the breakout sessions, we're going to ask you to post your ideas. Let us know what are some of the innovative ideas and solutions that you've come up with. We're going to collect all of that for our post-summit report and planning. You'll be asked to answer a breakout-specific poll question, and we'll be sharing those poll results when we return. Now, in the lobby, you may have noticed our pledge wall. You'll hear more about this during our final session as well. Uh, but if you're inspired, we encourage you to make your pledge for how you plan to move the world forward. And you heard uh, Oakland Mayor Libby Schaaf talk about it this morning. She already knows her pledge. She's going to make a small business loan to somebody and help out someone else. It could be something like mentoring a young woman. Anything at all that you think you can do beginning today to help move the world forward, we want to hear from you on that pledge wall. It's going to become a, it's going to become a living representation of our collective commitment that we've come up with here today to make a difference in our personal ways. So for now, I'm going to say goodbye, have a great lunch, and we will see you right back here 
after the breakout sessions. Thanks so much.